This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, Nubians. Hi. Hi. How art thou? Hi, Dr. Carr. Hey, Professor Hunter. Good everything. Yes, yes. Uh, It's a beautiful day. I was out in the rain uh, thinking about how many people hate the rain, and I was like, it's nice, it's warm, it's a warm little drizzle, light drizzle. It's uh, nature uh, cleansing itself, and it's nice. I think about all of the songs about being out in the rain so nobody knows you're crying. Mighty intruders. <laughs> I want to go outside. May sound crazy. <laughs> Might sound crazy, but uh, yes, indeed. I think that's the intruders, isn't it? Yeah, in the rain. My mine is the. What was it? Um, the. Uh, I want to go. Well, I'm not gonna sing, but I. Hey, come on now, come on now, come on now. You did this your space, but you know, there's another outside the rain, so no one, no one, no one knows that I'm crying, yeah, yeah, and that yeah. One, uh, and there's some people. Some people, you know that one. Yeah, um, I forgot who that I was. It was the, it, maybe no. Uh, then of course there's Orange Juice Jones. I saw you. <laughs> I saw and, you. And, and him. And, and him <laughs> walking in the rain. <laughs> you cold busted. <laughs> and then of course there's the uh, well, Missy Elliott actually was borrowing from the blues. I can't stand the rain. Yeah, it's my window. <laughs> yes. Bringing back those memories, you know, it's something about water, though. What is it? I mean, what is what? How do you feel when you're out there in that water? Well, usually, I used to hate, you know, rain made depressed me because it was like, oh, the sun's not out because I love the sun. I love the sun, the water, of course, uh, ocean, and all. But I've learned to appreciate, you know, nature in a different way in all of its forms, and I guess it's like, you know evolving as a human being because we have have to appreciate human beings in all of our forms as well you know because uh together we make whole we make wholeness when we're whole ourselves Mm -hmm. so for me it's just you know reconnecting and uh it now gives me a sense of peace and joy which i probably didn't have before with that's so interesting i mean what brings us peace what brings us joy i'm pulling up the app here so i can go left live and selling exactly. at the same time the um what brings us peace and joy water so funny you say that wholeness with a w w-h-o-l-e whole um i, I was talking uh yesterday with a brother chris chris manjapra who is um a professor up at tusky he's written about colonialism He's got a new book. I would love to hear the two of you all talking. It's called Black Ghost of Empire. Uh, the Long Depth of Slavery and the Failure of Emancipation. He's from... Wait, wait, can you all go again? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I'll be writing stuff down. Oh, yeah. Okay. Black Ghost of Empire, The Long Death of Slavery and the Failure of Emancipation. His name is Chris Manjapra. Mm. Uh, interesting brother. This is him, actually. He's from Barbados. Uh, you can see his face. Oh, wait, hold on. I mean, single, single yeah. Yeah, good brother, Chris Manjapra. He's at, uh, at Tufts University. <laughs> Most importantly, he is an African from um, not Barbados, from Bermuda. But he talks about how um, I'm sorry, I keep saying Bermuda. I always want to say Bermuda. He's from the Bahamas, Barbados, Bermuda, Bahamas, very different places. But Bahamas, of course, Sydney Poitier's place. And he was talking about how he was there. And over the 
millennia, the water eats these holes in the bedrock of the island and they cre and it creates what they call these blue holes and they can go miles deep and he says you look down in them and they're incredibly beautiful but they give you a sense of a void but then he said he was looking into one of the holes and he experienced the sensation of being in conversation and community and connection with his great 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 grandmother who he never knew but he's a researcher he's writing about enslavement colonialism the price we've paid the 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 ravages the ways we've resisted so it's a beautifully written book and he opens it by saying and going there to ask about her no one in living memory knew anything about her because she had made transition before the oldest person that he could find had been born but whereas he was looking in this hole he felt he said and it transformed from a void to a connection he said the water is a connecting thing it reminds me of danny black and said when you said that today i said oh that's yeah <laughs> you know dr Carr, how do you find these books because i'm constantly reading like for example this book black ghost of empire this is what will happen i mean you know i will go into not a bookstore into bookstores so I just wander around and, it, you know, it takes me maybe a few couple of minutes in a black section, so to speak, because I know all those books. I know them by color and the spine. I, I, I've read a lot of them, and but the ones I don't recognize, I'll pull. So this one I saw in an academic bookstore and I don't even remember where I got this one from. Sometimes if I pay for them and, and get a receipt, I'll stick it in as a bookmark. And I say, you want your receipt? I say, yeah, it's my bookmark. And I can tell you, but no anyway so i i looked at it and how else can i say how else do i do if i hear somebody talking i'll make a note and then i'll I just add it in my mind so i start looking for books and then if i find an author or a subject i will then look for more on that subject like by reading this book i found out about this book he wrote colonialism and global perspective this is a book he wrote before this book he traces colonialism through the last 500 years but i, I found it fascinating because it's a two-part book where he organizes it not around chronology but around theme part one interlocking colonial histories war primarily invasion that's what we're dealing with settlement settler colonialism plantation the forms of labor then we use to draw us out and then port so the ports are very important again coming back to that water theme in, 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 for, in a minute because you know obviously water plays such an important role in randall robinson's life as we'll talk about in a minute and then part two elementary aspects of colonial power science school and debt debt very important we we, we had we had a pretty good conversation just about debt anyway but so yeah, and then what? I'll, and then last thing I say is, you know, in terms of how I find written stuff, books and articles and magazines, and technology obviously is very helpful. There are probably some Nubians in here now, and folks later who will be looking these books up. And I encourage you to, because he's a, he's an excellent writer, particularly Black Ghost of Empire. It's written for a broader audience. But then, of course, I'm looking as I'm reading. I'm making notes of things I didn't know, people, places, historical events. Now I'm going to go look for stuff about them and always read the footnotes. Always read. I'm, a, I'm surprised at the number of writers 
that I've been blessed to be in conversation with who were surprised I read the footnotes. Like, you read the footnotes? I said, but you put the footnotes in the book. <laughs> I'm assuming you put them there <laughs> because people want, you know, but it's amazing how people read and don't read the footnotes. I mean, I, well, I mean, that's how you could distinguish between a, a person that did research and a person that is spitballing. Wow. Um, well, you know, an academic, because I'm not an academic writer, so I don't put footnotes. I, I will do cursory research, but I'm not doing any deep dives because most of the books that I've read, read written are, you know, memoirs, right? So I, 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 I uh, collaborate with other people to tell their live life stories. So uh, footnotes are not nece necessary, but in books that like this, yeah, we need to know your source. And if you don't have a source, then it's, the source is you. But yours are there too. What you say? They're not. They're not. They're not written. No, no they're not. But you can see the layers in which. Yes. You if you pick up a book, yes, you know that I've I've read some things. No, but, but it's not an academic, you know, adventure, as as these books are. And I think it's important that we make those distinctions too, as readers. Uh, I feel like a lot of us don't even know how to navigate these spaces because it's not even really taught, right? We we get assigned a book list. You got to write a book report when you're in fifth grade or sixth grade or whatever. There's going to be a summer list that you read. But, you know, even as you navigate in high school, you know, different authors, it's not done in a way that to me sparks the imagination and the curiosity enough to go down these rabbit holes to learn more. Right. Because you should be digging through like, oh, there's a name. I'm, I'm constantly when you're talking writing, I want to know more. I'm going to do a cursory search. And then like you, if there's a book about it, you know, and then we don't have time. Right. We don't have time. But I think we, we need to make time to know. We, we, have to, we have to. We have to. We don't. Or or, or, do we, or we don't. I, yeah, I, I'm going to say, you know, now we are subject to other people telling us who our God is, you know, how we should be moving politically, what we should be thinking about all things. And uh, we end up with the ignorance that we're currently mired in. I feel like we're an ignorant uh, quicksand vat. Uh, mm. And it's taking us out. It's, mm. It's so frustrating. I'm watching. <sighs> okay, but we're here. All right. No, watching. Wait, wait, wait. Go ahead, please. I'm just, I'm just watching all of the the commentary, the the see me, see me, the you know, the desire to to be to be heard, but without knowledge. You know, a lot of people saying stuff, don't know what they're talking about. You know, um, and clearly, clearly, we're at a we're at a, a you know a crossroad um, as human beings. You know the 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 manufactured battles that we find ourselves in that we welcome, you know, because we ain't got nothing else going on in our lives. We're gonna jump into some fight with people over what land, di diaspora, where you from, your gender, right? What what we doing really? What are we doing? Well, I mean, we're being driven, and actually, that's why I wanted to talk to Chris. He has a theme in this book. He calls it uh, ghost lining, and it it is the process by which victims of colonialism victims of, of of global level violence like we are um there is a deliberate always shifting effort to erase everything prior to our entry into this system as victims so he says he says in property they have redlining he says, in memory, they have ghost lining. In other words, everything before this moment is now ghostly. I mean, for example, given your extensive and prolific career as a writer, 
I was very, um, I was talking to my students in my hip hop class uh, last week and embarrassed that it took me until late March because we're just now getting up into the moment of their living memory to talk about some of these figures. And for me to say, well, you know, my friend and colleague and comrade, uh, Karen Hunter, was the, the, the writer of Kanye's mom's um, book. And they were like, oh, what? Yeah, I said LL Cool J. What? I mean, but I said this is, and I told Chris yesterday. I said this is an example of ghost lining. Every no, the generations don't know about the previous generations. And when I tell you that we were talking a couple of weeks ago about Rodney King rebellions, we were just students in that class who are from California who couldn't even tell him who is Rodney King. Uh, is he? Was he? I said, why did police stop him? I said, was he? Was he drunk? I, I know, and and so I mean, and, and, and so and then we play. I played Dr. Dre the day the N words took over from the Chronic, and contrasted that with when N.W.A. did "Express Yourself," sampling the Hundred and Third Street Watts band from the '60s, and Dre comes in and says, "I don't smoke bud or cess because give a brother brain damage." Of course, right in the wake of the Chronic, December '92, he releases the Chronic, but. As I told him, in, in much of hip hop, even commercial hip hop by that time, you had to have at least one conscious track. And it was the day the N-words took over and Dre sampled voices from the rebellion. And you hear these brothers saying, if you ain't down with the Africans in here, if you ain't down with the, if you ain't down, then get out the way and let us blacks and let us Mexicans take over. I mean, so, and they were laughing. I said, blacks and Mexicans, these are brothers, the Crips and the Bloods call a truce. The Christian, in other words, when, and, but they were sitting there like this was ancient history. And the more we talked and connected it to Tamika Mallory until Freedom, the performance at the Grammys, they could then say, oh, this check. Oh, Dre and them now dancing in prison jumpsuits at the Super Bowl. That's the same. No, it's ghost lining. It ghost lining. Everybody going on national television and we love her because I, I just feel like no. And so does she came up with stay woke come on now and i was like dr carr just told us on saturday that where it came from uh and how far it went back to well, you had the conversation with our brother <laughs> Gullah Geechee, i mean you know this is not a come on now yeah yeah but you know so what do we do right uh and and without without denigrating because you know folks no. get their feelings real quick and then they take sides like your That's only true. side should be truth that's right. That's the only thing you should have an allegiance to. And if it ain't truth, then back away from it. Don't sit in, don't sit in conflict over something that's not even uh, true. Right. Well, here we go. This is why we do this uh, 160 episodes in a row now today um, is to pour a clean glass of water and keep reminding people and erecting these ghosts. And uh, yeah, that's make, sure, make sure I mean, that's what we're doing. You know, it, it's... um. As our brother, who was sadly uh, taken from us prematurely on April the first, and was ironically one day before his birthday on April the second, Marvin Gaye, I'd say, you know, we we ask about the events, we talk about it, and then we ask the important question: How have you been? <laughs> I mean, you know, this is this is the human relationship. We, as Randall Robinson writes in uh, Quitting America, you know, any society where you love things before you love people is not a society. And of course, as James Baldwin writes, and I was talking to Chris about this as well, because he quote James Baldwin, but not this particular quote, but 
Baldwin said, you know, love helps you recognize what you don't remember. So, of course, we got all the room in the world for everybody. I mean, memory enhances our ability to do work. So if you were never introduced to it, you can't be penalized. It's not your fault. What what kind of society creates this place where you wouldn't know that? So, mm. you know, I, I, and then the celebrity, we've talked about that, you know, how celebrity overwhelms because, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that Erica Badu, who came out of South Dallas, who came out of the Performing Arts High School, man, you know, I know those Africans, Third Eye Study Group down there. I mean, talking about back in the day, and the sister who runs the, the bookstore in in Dallas. I mean, you know, who is who's just listed in in our compendium in in narrative. I wouldn't assume she didn't know that she didn't create it, but you know, once those bright lights come on. <laughs> you know, and, and and every generation gets to recreate. You know, so. Well, I mean, but then that's our responsibility. Every time someone says, you know, the global majority, because they heard it from me, I always say I heard it from Francis Cress Welsing, who I'm sure it was in the ISIS papers, who I'm sure might have heard it from somebody else. But you know, you gotta you gotta start the lineage, right? You gotta pass the baton. You gotta go back and remind people. Karen Hunter didn't come up with the global majority. I'm not going to take credit for something that I read somewhere. I'm going to tell you where I got it from. And then you should go and read that and then pull, you know, pull that thread. But, you know, to assume that you started anything in a world that is thousands of years with things that none of us could even imagine from pyramids to obelisks to, you know, how do people create stuff with no technology? Mm-hmm. How in the hell do you think you started something? discover something. I mean, it's just like, that's unfathomable. So, I mean, the, the, the ego that it would require for you to think you created something, you know, I was there's two young ladies that um, solve Pythagorean's theory, two black girls. Mm, I read the yeah, answer, yeah. and I went on and read the article. Okay, so t- walk us through that. Cause no, you know, I mean, I, I just, you know, listen, listen, no, tell us, why are you smiling, Professor Hunter? Because, you know, even, even that, there's this desire to the media needs needs the fuel right you know so you just keep putting the logs on without any actual uh study of exactly. what it is that you're actually putting out and i'm you know i'm sure they're brilliant brilliant black girls absolutely but to say a 2000 year old theory was solved by two two teenagers which I mean, is possible. possible yeah it's possible it's possible but if but if uh i'm assuming forgive me we're making this assumption, but I'm assuming that 99.9% of the people who read the headline don't know enough trigonometry <laughs> or maybe couldn't even spell Pythagoras. No, I'm saying myself, I'm saying so. Of course, I mean, okay, so help help us, Prof, because again, you teach this, you teach this when you see a headline like that in the press. What should we be doing as readers once we see the headline? Uh, you know what? I can't even direct you anymore because it used to be. <laughs> no, 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 no. It used to be you. You could read the first two paragraphs of a of a news story, mm-hmm. and get all of the facts that you need to then go do your research. The way you look at footnotes, you made, that, that you used to be the relationship. You've made that point before. Doesn't exist anymore. So you could read a whole story and still not know what story is. Wow. Okay, so what would you call that then? Um. Propaganda. I don't know what I would call it. I don't even know what to call it anymore because propaganda is specific. I just I call it laziness. I call it editors that don't have any skills, right? Because my editor would say, "Well, okay, uh, where did you get this? 
give me more information. I've come back from a story many times and had, you know, my editor challenged me and I didn't have an answer. And then if I didn't get your know, contact information, we couldn't use that information, right? Did you call, did you get the opposing view? No, okay, well, we can't run this. I'm imagining that back and forth doesn't happen anymore in a newsroom. I'm imagining there's not really any newsrooms <laughs> anymore what, like where you have veteran editors that take this job so seriously. Everything's about getting to, to press first because now it's 24 hours. We had time, you know, before the morning paper, before, you know, the evening, the first edition to keep going back and getting more information until the sports final, which was the last paper that went out. But now it's like, well, we got to be first. And then it's like, okay, we may have a correction in because you can actually make corrections now in the content. But who's going back and doing that work to make sure it's right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I had a, a veteran journalist in uh, in my class yesterday, Marcus Baum, who did a, did a book I'm sure you read on Gil Scott Heron that I'm sure you were like. Yeah, yeah. Happy birthday, Gil. Today's yeah. birthday. Yeah, I'm looking Why did at I do that? Why yeah. did that happen just now? That's so weird. All right. I didn't know that. Pieces of a man. I did not know that. Yes, he wrote that. Yes, you did. You knew. You just didn't have it in the front of your mind. Clearly, yes. you knew. <laughs> Clearly, you knew. Piece of a man. I'm looking at it right over there on my guild list. Yeah. So, so he came to speak to my class, and we we got we got we had this back and forth because he's like, you know, we used to be taught not to insert ourselves as journalists into the content, right? Into the story, like we. We are literally the conveyors. We are the conduits to this information. But now you have to give your opinion. Like it's demand, like every time I see I, me and my in a story, that's a new story. I'm sitting there like, who, what is happening? Like this, this shouldn't be, but we accept it, right? And because we want it, we want it now. We, we love the headlines, the clicks come in, we get algorithms. Now we can go sell ads. It's about the money. That that we the people are not served by this this medium and and this round the clock Trump stuff. Okay, man can still run for president. Man, even if he's indicted, even if he like is he can still run. He's still running, and he, if he wins, he can still win. Like y'all, what are we doing? You know, we, we round the clock, round the clock, round the clock. I mean, I think it's very uh very yeah. I mean, we obviously the news broke on Thursday. Actually. Um, Reese, I was with Reese, and uh, yeah, you, and you were rolling. Rolling. yeah, that's Thursday night, is the night that we do. And it was Erica's last day, Erica Savage. You know, she and Reese now, you, you just building this beautiful community, these sisters, man. I love it. She's gonna be hanging out with Reese on Saturday, so I'm like, this is beautiful. But I mean, we were there talking, and the news broke. And you know, I, I didn't talk about Reese Colbert has a live show on Saturdays on Sirius XM. Urban view, and it's not just sisters, brothers, everybody. Course, everybody for sure. But I'm I'm saying I need to say that because you know my my job in in this life is to provide platforms and voice, you know, to give people who may not have voice voice, right? Because everybody's sitting these gatekeepers in judgment of like who who they're going to pick. I don't do that. I'm like, who's got something to say? Go here, here, here. You got something to say here, and there's no judgment in terms of like are you saying the things that uh that service us but yes that is actually um something i do think about when i say us i'm thinking about us not not them that service us but also are these people free like you know if you want to you know, Reese free 
say well she got i ain't gotta agree with it i don't have to like the style of it but that's the that's the way diversity to me works like is you don't pick versions of yourself that's you right pick, you pick the people that reach the people however the people are that's right you know? so yes reese has a show saturday uh so after this go listen to her i think it's at two or three o'clock um on Sirius XM Urban View 126. Oh, 126. Oh, right. right. But that's right. Oh, and uh Pan-African Connection. And count on the Nubians. That's the name of the bookstore in Dallas. Thank you. Okay. The Nubians have put it in the chat. That's right. And we got so yes, and so uh and 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 you know, Randall Robinson makes this point as well in quitting America when he, he talks about the importance of being small. He says, big probably not gonna save the species because this is a man spent his life jousting with states in fact he writes in his memoir about how the south africans and the african national congress flipped the script on him and um you know once they they thought they could be in state to state relations with the united states and we'll talk about that in a minute but 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 to the to the specifics of this this trump business and and what we you know need to probably just take a deep breath and calm down with what you are seeing and working every day to engender and foment the brick metaphor again is from the inside out starting small and as it grows it grows strong as you you know always remind us those roots are sunk deep we're living in a world now where those big forces the, the forces that chris ben jopper has been writing about and talking about are on the brink on the brink of collapse. The United States of America, the criminal enterprise we call the United States of America, is has always been on the brink of collapse. It has been held together by brute force, by violence. But it initially was uh, stitched out of an idea, a brutal single set of violences, the ones that 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 Chris writes about in colonialism and global perspective. And of course, he isn't the first. I mean, there's so many who write, and we talked about that too, but the, the, the violence of war, the violence of settlement, the violence of creating labor to burnish that 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 that, that violence, that point of entry violence of war and, and colonialism and settlement. And then to stitch it all together using the water port. That's how that modern world system is created. That's how colonialism is, is should be seen in global perspective. Now, those violences hold you together they fuel you being held together but you have to be held together by concepts by icons shrines totems by common uh, curated memories well when you're talking about something like the united states of america or when you're talking about other artificial kind of border created states like almost all the countries in africa most of the countries in the world in fact you're talking about something that then has to make be, be it has to be maintained through a combination of force interest common interest and <clears throat> if you're not careful i'm sorry i shouldn't even say that strike that it's not a matter of being careful if you're not utterly ruthless then those things will take on lives of their own because they are, after all, all artificial. 
they are markers for bringing people together for whatever purpose. Now, how does that connect with the, you know, the conversation y'all were having yesterday about Gil and, and even the concept of how we read and know and then this Trump business? Well, as I said, on Thursday, when the news broke, I'm sitting there with Reese Colbert and Erica Savage and Roland Martin and then Trump been indicted. Okay. No, the only thing I said didn't say much that night. What I did say was that, as you said, Brock, he can still run for president, even if convicted. I would encourage people, although he was not president of the United States, he was attacked by the, the federal government consistently and imprisoned at some at one point allegedly for sedition, we're talking about World War One. look up Eugene V. Debs. Debs ran for president of the United States as a socialist, won millions of votes, and ran from prison himself. Trump can run from prison. Trump can be the president of the United States from prison. There's no provision in the Constitution that prohibits it. He meets the age requirement. He, reached, he meets the natural uh, uh, citizen requirement. He, okay. There's no requirement to say you can't be a, a felon. You can't run from prison. Now, I don't know how you would have a chief of staff and have a staff running it from jail. But you ain't got to worry about this guy going to jail, maybe, because Alvin Bragg and them, I mean, once you indict somebody, now you get into the rest of the process, which may or may not involve a plea. You know, and there are those who would say that this would, and I'm one of them, that this could burnish his bona fides, in fact, in running for president. It's very interesting. Today's New York Times for example, I think uh, as I leaf through this morning and parenthetically, I drop a footnote here to say that I am well aware, obviously, of the 24 hour news cycle and how archaic it is to read a physical newspaper. But for me, reading the paper every day, in addition to being something my daddy did, which is why I do it. But, you know, so there is that connection with the ancestors. And there's some one of the benefits of doing this is it wasn't the times maybe it was in fact the maybe it was the financial times of london but one of the benefits is that you get to read things in sequence and you get to read things like a collage so the reason that i'm looking through here one more time is because i recall the box and there it is the box <laughs> See, when you read on the internet, you scrolling. It's a different process. You just kind of, but the, the the serendipity, which isn't serendipity at all, Prof, you know this better than all of us, because having worked at, worked through, worked with, and taught how to do work in and around the press, including the, the, the in newspapers and, and news magazines, this has been curated by somebody who wants to tell a story, by a bunch of somebodies, an editorial board, staff. So when you're reading the physical paper, you're seeing how people want you to think about things that have gone on in the world. So, of course, the front now, they're past this now. Trump gets ready for arraignment. So does New York. The, uh, the white world, the business world, just <laughs> around to this. This is today's Financial Times. Trump set to face criminal charges in New York court. See, they had other things they needed to deal with, so they just getting around to making it a big headline, like we saw in, I guess it was, uh, if I have it here, I'll pull it quickly. Yeah. This is uh, yesterday's New York Times. Trump indicted! Okay, yeah. So as I say, Thursday night, when the news broke, it was like, ha, ha! I'm like, oh, everybody calm down. This don't mean nothing. 
Now, that doesn't get lost in the conversation. And increasingly, that's going to be the conversation. But in the point of moment, we've been trained to like a Pavlovian response. Now, who hasn't said anything yet? Well, this is the big article on pages uh, A16 and 17. As Trump prepares for arraignment, so is New York. Continuing from page A1. But look at this little article here in the corner, in the bottom below the fold on page A17. Let's go to it very quickly. And for those uh, watching him, that's a broadsheet versus a tabloid. Broadsheet is how a paper folds. So the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Washington Post are broadsheets. The Daily News, the uh, the Post, the New York Post are tabloids and all of those British papers because of how it folds. Ah. How it folds. And so tabloids are more sensational because it's got that one giant, you know, uh, first page and it opens that way. Whereas the broadsheets, so many, it's so big that it's not, you know, it doesn't lend itself to the giant picture. (laughs) Now, is it apocryphal that the reason you, that the broadsheets are for the masses, the subway riders, the bus riders, so they can, or is that just like I think um you know as 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 media, you know, when, when they used to have the newsboys and the, the boys out, you know, yelling and you know, it, it's really about ease of like to your point, um tabloids are more geared towards new newly arrived immigrants for first of all the simplicity of language, you know, they're usually written at a lower grade level. So that new newly arrived immigrants, much like our education system, you know, it's like right. just to give you just enough so that you you know can go about your way and know some things. Whereas broadsheets are more investigative reporting. You have more you know uh, higher um, higher level journalism, so to speak. You know, so the New York Times written on an eighth grade level, Daily News third grade level. Okay, which is of course increasingly the lines have been blurred because the point you're raising. With the shift in technology, right? So who? How do we know? <laughs> how do we know, right? I mean, as you say, I mean, the wars of the the eighties and nineties with the Daily News and the New York Post. We were talking about Yusuf Hawkins and yeah. all the bumpers and all. I mean, the war. In fact, Earl Graves made this point at Randall Robinson's retirement in two thousand two. They had the retirement here in D.C. and Earl Graves talks about the battles when he was in the street. And he was followed very quickly by Earl Lewis, the publisher of Essence, who was the chair of the board for Trans Africa at the time. And they were in the street fighting um, uh, uh, the police killing execution of Amadou Diallo. He opened with that. And so those of us who are old enough remember the tabloid press, of course, and Donald Trump right. with the Central Park Five. So yeah, the sensationalist headlines, the pictures. Yeah, I mean, we had that conversation in my class yesterday because um, Yusuf Salam, I actually spent time with his yeah. mom. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, Sharon, I, I covered that. And I remember I was, you know, in my early 20s and the headline at the Daily News was Wild Wolf Pack or something like that. And then I remember sitting at my desk looking at this full page ad that Donald Trump put in calling for the death penalty. And I didn't have any of this knowledge that I have now, but my 20-something-year-old mind was saying, how do you call for the death penalty for, for people that have not even had, do, haven't gone to trial? There was no trial. 
And then it was like, it was a rape. It was a rape. Nobody died. Now you, you, you're calling for the death penalty, but it's that birth of a nation. Like we got to protect white virtue. And, you know, at the time we didn't know who the, the lawyer was that was raped uh, brutally. And it was a brutal attack. It was Absolutely. a brutal attack. Everything that points to it. But these children did not have an opportunity to even have a trial and they were already convicted in, in my newspaper. And I sat there and I felt shame. And I remember feeling shame. And I remember spending those days with Sharon Salam, who was devastated because she put so much into this boy who is now running for office. Uh, but I was saying to my students, you know, Donald Trump spent more than a couple of hundred thousand dollars because he put ads in every newspaper. Yeah. With this long letter, full page. And, and now we find out those boys didn't do that. And and I know at least one of them is not right to this day because I spent time with him and he will never be right again. I don't know what horrors he he experienced uh, as a 16-year-old behind bars, but he will never be right. And I'm not going to call his name. And if you watch those documentaries, I think it's pretty clear. This man was traumatized. Yes, yes. And and so Mar Marcus Barron was talking about that too. You know, he's like, everybody in New York was like, this clown could be, you know, it was a joke when he ran because we all know that he's a clown and he's not serious and he's all of that. But middle America for them, and then I had to say this, for them, it was, it was validation for their own mediocrity. Trump oh, represents right. that, right? So I, I'm going to support him because he, he thinks like I do. Like, Instead of the better angels, instead of us wanting elevation, it was comfort in the thing, the 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 least the, the least common denominator, you know, the lowest form. That's right. And um, you know, and he said, I'm still shook that he got elected. Said, I'm still shook by that because we know. Well, I mean, he got elected by a minority of voters and the non-voters. Congratulations, non-voters. You you uh you elected Donald Trump. Oh, no, no. Yeah, you did. You didn't go out and stop him. That's why I got my little uh, 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 Dallas County Voters League uh, uh, hoodie on this morning because we know there's an election on the 4th of April in Wisconsin, this Wisconsin Supreme Court. And if you are in the state of Wisconsin and registered to vote and have not yet voted in early voting, you need to take handle your business because uh, you have a, an election between uh, Janet, uh, what is it? Prolisiewicz is running for, it's a non-partisan election for the Wisconsin Supreme Court, but she's running against a white nationalist named Daniel Kelly, a Trumper, an always Trumper, an election denier. And if um, Janet Prolisiewicz wins, it's probably the Wisconsin Supreme Court will revisit the ban on abortion, will revisit radical redistricting, all of those things. If Daniel Kelly wins, then you're looking at the possibility and probably the likelihood of this foolishness that uh, is, is now before the Supreme Court out of North Carolina, the Moore case um, on the um, what they call the independent state judiciary, Moore versus Harper case. You're looking at the likelihood of white nationalist minority rule in Wisconsin and contributing to white nationalist minority rule in the federal legislature, United States Congress, and the Electoral College for the foreseeable future. Now, you know, I don't give a damn 
about the framework that we call the United States of America. In fact, if there's a way to give less of a damn, that would probably be where I am. But let's be very clear. We're not talking about frameworks. We're talking about people. And so it's very important to understand that Donald Trump was not elected by the majority of people eligible to vote in the United States of America. Donald Trump was elected by a minority of the people who did vote and abetted by millions who did not vote. And so, yeah, it's a joke until the laughter stops and you find yourself in real peril, real peril. So, you know, again, thinking about this in terms of how Ryan Robinson frames frames this in, in quitting America, you got big and you got small. Small for Randall Robinson at that point, at age 60, when he went to St. Kitts with his wife, uh, Hazel, his daughter, Kalia, and they relocated. Small meant St. Kitts. Hazel's place, where she is from. Small then allowed him to think universally in terms of humanity, in terms of connections. But the first thing you got to do is shrink it down to think, shrink it down to listen, shrink it down to relationships and being. And then you can go back large because he had been large and been going large for a very long time. Donald Trump's a very small human being. But then again, all of us are, really. But when you organize your logic, the way you move through the world around something as hate-filled, as violent, as anti-human as race and by race i mean at the core whiteness that's a small thing too but it is a small thing that having been cultivated through centuries of war centuries of conquest and settlement centuries of creating plantation and enforced labor death camps and enslavement networks and then centuries of ports in other words connecting that small thing metastasized into a, a parasite that fed on humanity and created a system that now can't, that system it created can't be rehabilitated, can't be healed. It is a sick system from the inside out and it must be destroyed. This is where Randall Robinson comes in and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, uh, but the, the reason that I mentioned, as you talked about, even talking about Trump, and this indictment, like say on Thursday night, we were talking, say, hey, man, just like you just said, it doesn't mean he can't run. It doesn't mean he can't win, be elected. Doesn't mean he can't serve, serve, so to speak. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, but just satisfying. Why is it satisfying? We need to think of with this, with the cool logic, with cool logic. And even since Thursday, if we listen, we see people now beginning that logic is beginning to emerge you see because this isn't the maury show or maybe it is this isn't real housewives of fill in the blank or maybe it is this isn't social media picking sides on something nobody knows anything about or maybe it is this isn't sports entertainment distraction where that too becomes a morality plan we were talking before we went live of course said that uh don staley's not going fight for the national championship with her young women and nobody wants to see i mean there are millions who obviously want to see uh the little uh the little coach at louisiana state university with her funeral home coach coach um standing there you know uh guiding young girls in, uh, of african descent up and down the court uh versus the corn fed uh cohort from iowa um yeah there are people who want to see that order has been restored in the white world but 
you know, this is this isn't that either. All that's entertainment. Ultimately, it's morality plays. We pick our sides. You know, we pick our sides. And so what this is, is real life, you see, um, as uh, Black Dante, the mighty most deaf, uh, might say, um, beef is not what Jay said to Nas. Beef is when the working folks can't find jobs. <laughs> In other words, some beef is big, some beef is small, but what y'all call beef is not beef at all. Beef is real life happening every day, and it's realer than them rhymes that I gave to Cade Slade. In other words, we have to be focused, and we're seeing it now beginning to be focused on today's, in today's New York Times, bottom of uh, page A17 is a little article. Some top Republicans are not speaking out. They can't condemn Trump. The pufferfish has already said that Florida will not cooperate in a, any attempt to extradite Donald Trump. The pufferfish, with two Ivy League degrees, including Harvard Law, knows damn well that no state can refuse and can withhold cooperation with the federal government when it comes to someone charged and indicted, indicted and charged. And, and you, you can't you know, puff. You know that. You got a law degree from one of them Ivy League schools where they don't really teach you how to be a lawyer. We're going to come to that with Randall Robinson in a minute, too, because he went to Harvard Law, which should tell you the pedigree of people who go to Harvard Law. Uh, but at any rate, and he went from Virginia Union and before that Norfolk State, behold the green and gold out of uh, Richmond, Virginia, Randall Robinson, his brother Max, who uh, preceded him at Virginia Union. And we'll talk about that in, in a minute. But Puff knows that you're just talking, but he also knows that most people don't know that. And so what he's engendering is a morality play, a distraction. So he jumped out there because he wants those millions of voters who are relying on those of us who won't vote and relying on the white nationalists who have seized control of too many legislatures in the United States and on the verge of installing a white nationalist majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court so they can cement the uh, white nationalist chicanery they've worked at over the last several decades in the state of Wisconsin. Puff knows that uh, he is speaking to that white nationalist base which is a minority in this country, but out of their smallness, have the benefit of being at the center of a criminal enterprise called United States and ultimately the world system that while it is fracturing, it's still very dangerous. Very dangerous. As you reminded us, Professor Hunter, a puffer fish is small, but it's poisonous. <laughs> so he, he knows that. But uh, let's look at the others who haven't said anything. This is Neil Vigner's article today. When Rich, when Mitch McConnell, and by the way, we, you know, uh, mindful of the fact that John Fetterman has uh, left the hospital and is going to spend another couple of weeks at home, you know, very openly talking about his battle with depression. Mitch McConnell, who has not been in the Senate because of various injuries, has not been attacked. Why? Because the white nationalist press understand their Christian soldier leader, the cynic, as he has been called, because he don't believe in none of that. And the so-called mainstream press, the white stream press, seems ready to give McConnell a pass. When Mitch McConnell, the Senate's top Republican, voted to acquit former President Donald J. Trump during impeachment proceedings after the Capitol attack, he said in a Senate floor speech that former presidents were not immune from being held accountable by the criminal justice system and civil litigation. And now that the criminal justice system is taking Mr. Trump to task, shout out to Alvin Bragg, waiting on Fannie Willis, waiting on several other uh, prosecutors. Albeit over a different matter entirely, Mr. McConnell 
has remained silent. Mm -hmm. Here are other high-profile Republicans who appear to be avoiding commenting on Mr. Trump's prosecution. Let's take just about maybe two minutes or less on this and see if we can see a pattern in the people who haven't said anything yet. Governor Christine Noem of South Dakota, Liz Cheney, The spokesman from Ms. Cheney said on Friday that she has no plans to comment at this time. Huh. Christie, the former New Jersey governor, Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire, and Larry Hogan, former governor of Maryland. Now, I'm reminded of the old Sesame Street song, one of these things just doesn't belong here, but maybe not. What do these five have in common? Anybody, Professor Hunter, what do you think? The governor of South Dakota, Liz Cheney, former governor of New Jersey, the, the governor of New Hampshire, and the former governor of Maryland. Perhaps they want to run for president? Well, I'll be damned. What you think, Prof? Come on back for a minute. Isn't that something? Now, now, if I was scrolling through the internet, I wouldn't have seen this story. This is just a little story in the corner of, as you say, this huge tab, both sides of this in on page eight sixteen seventeen of the New York Times. What you think about that? They haven't said anything. So, so um, yesterday I had J.L. Colvin, um, who uh, whose daddy's Haitian. Yes. Who does probably one of the best impersonations of Donald Trump. So we did five minutes of Trump to kick off the show because it's Foolishness Friday. Those of you who aren't familiar with the Karen Hunter show and you're just clip diving on YouTube, there's a whole, you know, theme. That goes, you like, you got to understand what it is. Don't just come on commenting if you ain't never listened to the radio show. Come on. Uh, so come on. it's three hours, by the way. It's live. It's not a podcast. So I had him on early, you know, to kick off the show. And he's a lawyer as well. And I had Cena Gasnaby on, who's a lawyer. And we had a conversation about the politics of this. And he said, you know, it was a time when, you know, we have three branches of government, little civics lesson, you know, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, which is the Supreme Court. The legislative branch makes up uh, Congress, which is the House of Representatives and the Senate. And he said, you know, the House is uh, every two years is, you know, so they're constantly campaigning. Mm -hmm. But the Senate has a six-year term. And that was done, the framers believe, so that people in Congress could focus on the future and sitting in what is needed in the future and not worry about votes right now. Right. And that's why they have a six-year term. It wasn't meant for people like Chuck Grassley and uh, Diane Feinstein to be there until they're 115 years old. It was meant because, you know, for people to care about what is legislatively important, not now, not based on what the voters are talking about now, but in the future. And he said, they are acting like representatives. Mitch McConnell's acting like a rep. And I never thought about it until yesterday. And I was like, this is the, everyone is like, almost like our media, you know, algorithms and the clicks That's and right. the click, you know, they're, they're going for the, the, the attention and they're calculating that they want to be president of the United States without caring about what the, the country actually needs. We need someone to stand up and have some sort of moral fiber. Um, one of my students uh, who's not from here, she's from Jamaica. And, she mm. says, and I said, well, do you want to be a citizen? She's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not, professor. I'm going back home. Mm. Uh, but, you know, and that's interesting too. But she's here getting an education. We can have that discussion. But she said, you know, there was a time if someone stole a pencil, they would step down because stealing okay. is wrong and I'm not representing this country at the highest level as a thief. Come on. 
She said, that doesn't exist anymore. And I don't understand why, you know, there used to be integrity baked into these positions. Even Richard Nixon resigned for crying out loud. Richard Nixon resigned. Like that would never happen today. Richard Nixon would never resign today because the climate is such that I'm going to be quiet, even though I know it's wrong. And um, because the Congress is not going to impeach me. He resigned because he knew that that Congress was going to impeach him. If right, if Nixon was here today, I ain't going nowhere. Why? They already said they're not going to. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So and, 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 and help me with this. Did you see? I just saw a trailer yesterday for a. Is it called The Plumbers? It's like a, a limited series television. Yeah, if y'all seen it, maybe it's called a Plumber. It's about G. Gordon Liddy. It's about I think Woody Harrelson is in it again. Why they keep making these same. HBO, yeah. Is it? Is it called The Plumbers? Yeah, The Plumbers. White House Plumbers. Yeah, White House Plumbers. Okay. And I'm saying, okay, now Frank Willis died penniless. We talked about Frank Willis in class. We talked about him. Why do y'all keep wanting to rehabilitate these white boys? I mean, we know the answer. I mean, the only reason to keep doing this is that you want them, you want a gray area in this morality play called white supremacy. Do you want to have this conversation? I mean, I know we, we were going somewhere. Um, no, we're, going, we're good. You got me reading so many books. Uh, I'm reading Ray Dahlia. I'm reading this book called The Great Reset. And it was talking about, you know, like all of these culture wars are manufactured because of the economy, right? So you had real men working steel, steel mills and they're in the coal mines and they, they, you know, you bring home the bread and you win, you know, and that's what a man is. And um, this great, we said the guy, uh, there was a story the guy's sharing where this man was walking past this like beauty parlor with his daughter, with his son. <laughs> and he said, you know, your aunt was going to leave that to me, but because I, that wasn't a man's work, I didn't take it, right? Uh, he worked in a factory. He said, you know, I like coloring your mother's hair and I like doing cutting hair and I like doing all of that, but it wasn't manly. It wasn't man's work. And he said, I regret that, son, because I could have owned that building and had a business that I enjoyed doing, but instead I stayed in a factory where you know, I never made enough money to to actually, you know, uh, have a nice retirement. That said, you know, I think about even this notion of, you know, alpha male and, you know, what it means to be, and Trump is the the soft-handed, soft-bellied, never done a lick of hard work in his entire life, is the bastion of maleness because of how crass and crude and rude and brutal he is. And that is the symbol of manhood, Right. But it's all manufactured so that y'all ass can be somewhere to do the work for the one percent, period. And and when Fred Hampton gave the message that hey, you're you're just as victimized as we are, and people were like yeah, you know what, he had to go. And when Martin got out there talking about the same thing, he had to go. And when Malcolm got out there talking about the same thing, he had to go. And that is the message that they don't want, right? Which is this notion that. If, if I can get you focused on your virility right. and, and your, your place in life, right? So you, you, you built this false narrative and then other folk came here and like, oh, we got to get 1,600 on SATs. This is all we need to do. And they actually followed your model and you told the other people they didn't have to work. Right. And then they looking around, they don't have any jobs now. Right. The job market is shifted. They're not coming back. You will never have those jobs. And now you're not ready. Now, yeah. And prepared for the world that is here, mm. service oriented, right? Mm. Which is in favor mostly women, 
So now you're seeing this, this other thing happening. Let's put them barefoot, pregnant, back in the kitchen. Let's do that because we can't compete because we don't want to actually do work. We like sitting on the veranda with our mint julep and having someone serve us. But but in order to get there now, this is not the world. And now you got Africa saying, mm, duck if you buck. Like, we ain't really impressed anymore because we got the resources and the richest black folk in the world are in Africa. Like, And they got the most people under the age of 20. The future is not you. And you know that. So the fear of I can't compete and I know it. The lie that has I've been telling my children for the last several decades, the chickens have come home to roost, as Malcolm would say. And now here we are. And here we are. And so, so nothing they can do is keep us fighting with each other. And if we right. fall for the okie doke, dummy, right. Right. Oh, you're African, you're from this, you're, yes, do that, do that, because I can't compete with you if you figure out that you actually have the power. That's exactly when right. The rabbit has the gun. The rabbit has the gun now. Ain't no fun. Stop it. Like, Ain't no fun. So, well, well, the rabbit has Sorry, I went off. No, 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 no. That is exactly what we're talking about today. I mean, uh, the, in the previous generation, Herman and, and Noam Chomsky, when they wrote the book Manufacturing Consent, they said the reason, the way you keep people down is you have to create necessary illusions. So we got the sports, we got the reality TV. Now, this is years before all this stuff, the reality TV. And you have to create, you have to manufacture consent. So people will say, well, voting is a way to manufacture consent. No, if you're only voting and you're not running good candidates, for sure. And you can see that the way, and you know, the way mass commercial entertainment media in collusion with this structure is able to shape opinion. It was very interesting. Did you, I'm sure you did comment on it too. Uh, see the long article on Hakeem Jeffries in the time. I did not. It was Wednesday. I thought it was fascinating because we've had that conversation here. You know, I know longtime friends with, uh, Rosalind and Leonard Jeffries, both professors. Rosalind Jeffries, one of the finest art historians we have. Leonard Jeffries, longtime chair of African Studies at Black Studies, it's called at City College. And I always wondered at what point are they going to try to tie Hakeem to his <laughs> uncle and auntie? The New York Times did a chef's kiss job of basically wrapping, enveloping Hakeem and saying, no, he was a negotiator. Even when he was an undergrad, his uncle came to speak at his undergrad. He was between those who said free speech and those who felt offended by some of the things his uncle had said. I said, oh, they've decided. You know, we want to make sure we put a firewall between you. You say you stay on your best behavior. You're not going to have to deal with a man who we literally tried to crucify. We fired him, took him to court. I said, they have decided Hakeem, you passed for now. I mean, you can never be permanent. You know what I'm saying? Rand Robinson writes about that too. But it was fascinating to read this article because it's like, okay, this is it now. You know, because um, I'm thinking right now, Chicago. You you brought up Wisconsin. Oh, oh my God, we get, that's right. I'm thinking Chicago. Yes. And and I've had conversations with people from Chicago, and they don't have good choices. No. And I keep though. They're not good, but they're clear. There's well, a clear well, who, who makes the choices? How do we get to the, these are our only choices? And I was like, so we just get Harold Washington and that's it? Like, y'all not, so how did Harold Washington sneak in? Like Different times, different times. And that's something that we want to talk about today too. I was looking at the retirement, rewatching the retirement thing for Randall Robinson. This was 20 years ago. And something somebody told me 
many years ago about boards of trustees at HBCUs came back as I was watching Earl Graves, as I was watching Earl Lewis. Ed, 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 Ed. Ed Lewis, Ed, Ed, sorry, not Earl Lewis. I'm, thank you, because Earl Lewis is actually uh, an academic. Thank you, Ed Lewis, Earl Graves, uh, Janetta Cole, Danny Glover, all these people who were involved with Trans Africa who were on the board. And somebody once said to me, said, you know, once black people got into positions of authority as trustees at HBCUs, because we were not initially for most of these places, Many of those black people have been institution builders. So if you go to North Carolina Central or ANTNM, if you're on the board, you might have been the head of North Carolina Mutual Insurance. You say if you're you know the founder of Essence Magazine, Black Enterprise, and this. But now what you have is black people who work for white people. It's a different mentality. So what you see now is so when you ask about Harold Washington. Harold Washington is a coalition politician that comes out of organizing, that comes out of community, and the coalition that put Harold Washington in would be very difficult to recreate today. When you look at a guy like Johnson running for a mayor of Chicago now coming out of the teachers union, that is an echo of the of the days when organized labor, because the only thing going to beat capital is people. Somebody said that in the chat a minute ago. You can't beat money. with If you don't have no money, what you have is yourself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So the unions have, now Paul Vallis is an absolute creature and creation of daily the sun of all them guys i mean after he leaves here comes arnie duncan these guys are machine white machine guys johnson is an echo he's not uh he's not uh harold washington but guess what nobody is that generation the randall robinsons the genetic coles i mean these are some people who came out of segregation jim crow interestingly enough most of them born in the 40s <laughs> it's very interesting when I started looking, look at these things. and I agree with Adolph Reed Jr. when he wrote his little book The South uh, uh, last year and he said that generation owes the future, owes us telling the stories. This is why Randall Robinson's memoir is so important because now with this ghost lining, young people have no idea and they assume that when they see a black face it's the same as the black face from 20 years ago, from 40 years ago, from 60. No, this structure works very hard to curate people. So why don't we have somebody like Harold Washington? Because that came out of a particular time and space that we can recover some of that memory, but it's going to come with a great effort because they flatten the distinctions between time. You know, I mean, where are the journalists? Where are the great writers? You know what I'm saying? Uh, when you're coming along and you can think of, we were talking about this. I mean, but you see Bill Roden at the New York Times, but what you don't see is Sam Lacey at the Afro American. That's who trained Bill Roden. The brother who was working for the NFL Network, Roland Coverdash, uh, was uh, Thomas, I think his name. He just, he was questioning Roger Goodell. Now they just got rid of him. And he, and he said, I went to Howard. That was Sam Yet. He said, Sam Yet trained me. But see, that generation is gone. You are you are the black press. This is why this is where I'm going with. That's why I say it all fits together. When you go small, you're really setting it up to go global. So what you what you're doing now with these roots, and I'm it's not a strategy thing. I'm just gonna, I, ain't, I ain't gonna say too much. But what I'm saying is that, see, going small means you can't be stopped. It only looks like you could be stopped. I want to talk about this in terms of Randall Robinson. Yeah, yeah, Victoria. I think Brandon Johnson is. Thank you. Jim Trotter is his name. Jim Trotter. Thank you. Yeah, they're putting it in the chat. Yeah, I I, I listen to, uh, to Brandon Johnson and am certainly um, attracted to a great deal of his vision. Paul Vallis is, is Paul Vallis. 
Okay, we talked about that actually. If you were in Nubia, we talked about this on Monday night during office hours when Dr. Delaney came in, Kim Delaney, who who was you know Chicago and through and through. But that period, and Reverend Riker talk about this as well, who also served on the board of Trans Africa, by the way, about those Chicago politics and the coalition politics that put um put put um put uh, Mayor Washington in. Uh, by the way, I should add this footnote very quickly on Randall Robinson. I uh, got a text uh, this morning from Reverend Wright, and he probably will put this in the chat as well if he's here this morning. Randall Robinson, he said, Randall's funeral is Thursday in St. Kitts, and there will be a memorial service in D.C. at the end of May. Uh, Hazel and Kalia send their love. The family, of course, of, of Randall Robinson. So we, we know that ancestor will be initiated into attorney formally this week in St. Kitts. Um, but the white nationalist violence that we're seeing around this country and the choices we have driven by finance, capital, and money, we are seeing something that may be on the verge now, maybe on the verge of collapse. And I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now, but this looking back when it does eventually dissolve, which is inevitable all societies go through that reconfigure we'll probably look at this as an inflection point and we won't look at 2023 we'll look at the last 50 years and we'll see an acceleration of it i mean we saw what happened news out of mississippi this week here in the united states rejecting medicaid expansion there are nine other states mostly in the old confederacy where they are simply saying we are willing to kill our voters in order to retain the ability to steal public dollars and channel them to the, our employers, finance capital. Um, three quarters of all rural hospital closures since 2010 are as a result of not extending or accepting Medicaid expansion. That's simply what it is. Three quarters. So, you know, those who get frustrated with these folk because we too need health care. And we need health care in these states where our people by the millions live, not are trapped or live because we have agency because many of the people who are suffering didn't vote. You know, I am a unashamed, unabashed advocate for exercising the vote as a tool, not the tool, not the quote unquote silver bullet, the panacea, but a tool. Why the hell would you not use all your tools? Um, many people who are out here saying, you know, voting is okay. You must have good health care. Don't bother arguing. You know, if you don't, then we need to talk about the strategies. It's very important. Now we saw that the governor of North Carolina signed into law Medicaid expansion this week. Medic uh, North Carolina became the 40th state, but that's because it's a Democratic governor, and they were able to ultimately bang on the legislature in North Carolina. And that isn't because the white nationalists in the Carolina legislature, of course, led by the same Moore, who is the Moore in Moore versus Harper, this independent state legislature cockamamie theory that they now have enough votes on the current United States Supreme Court to probably enshrine in law. Something tells me we're going to be talking about that shortly when that, when that decision comes down. It's not because they wanted to do it. It's because this constant barrage, Moral Mondays, you know, was talking this week with uh, Monifa Akamwole Bandele, 
who um, she and her husband Lumumba Bandele, long distance runners. Those of you from Brooklyn, y'all know the East. You know if you are from Mississippi and other places, the, the Malcolm X grassroots movement. Think about Baba A.K. Akinyele Umoja, who I talked about a little bit last week. Um, talking about them, she's uh, the chief strategy officer for an organization called Moms United, which talks about everything from universal health care to maternal care to training more doulas and midwives because you know that's that's an area that we need more people in fact there was a time as monifa was saying that you know black women delivered all the damn babies in the country white babies in the south and they babies white during enslavement come on that's what we're talking about something it's not like you know and before that coming from africa of course that's what what we did so it's not like we're coming into a new profession. This is what we did. It's what we do. But I'm saying all that to say that you've got people who are choosing their whiteness over their lives in this fracturing settler piece. And this is why all these politicians ain't saying nothing because they want them people to vote for them if they run for president. Now, the pufferfish has to jump out there now because he hasn't announced yet. But as he's going around the country, he's realizing that his little pufferfish message not really translating in these places he's going. Doesn't mean he's out the game. Meanwhile, the man who has been indicted is rallying his neo-fascist, I'm sorry, they would call themselves white Christian nationalists, same thing, base, and saying, I'm being persecuted. Was Christ not crucified? <laughs> I mean, I almost hear it, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, this Trump indictment is important to mention as a symptom of a much larger malaise and not to dwell too much on it. And of course, when you start talking about spinning things, as we saw in my hometown of Nashville, the murders at the Christian school, which is about maybe 10 or 15 minutes from where I went to school, my public high school, Hillsborough High School. Everybody knows where that is in Green Hills if you're from Nashville. And this uh, person went and shot up the school, killed three children, three adults, including a black man, the custodian in the building, one of the custodians in the building. And the Washington Post on Wednesday ran a feature-length article on the AR-15. The AR-15 thrives in times of tension and tragedy. This is how it came to dominate the marketplace and loom so large in the nation's psyche. The headline was revered and reviled. See, this is a symptom. This is a symptom of, as Chris Manjapra is writing, war. Settler colonialism, plantation and death camp labor, and then connecting it all through the ports. Not just the seaports now, but obviously the networks. So all of this going on, and Randall Robinson making transition a week ago, and Professor Hunter breaking the news here, and making the very deliberate decision to do it, to the nation, by the nation I mean the black nation, and not wait on white stream media to do it. And uh, <laughs> I loved the New York Times obituary because they finally got around to it, Prof, as you saw. Just took forever. Took forever, right. And right. Uh, Reverend Smith, Reverend Smith was banging on them on Twitter. When you gonna do it, Washington Post and New York Times. But I understand why the, why the great lady didn't want to do it because Randall Robinson, had a very clear relationship with them. He's above the fold on page 821 in Wednesday's newspaper. Randall Robinson 
catalyst and fight against apartheid dies at 81. That's right. Try to shrink him down. Watch this. I, I love this first. Uh, Randall Robinson, a self-described, quote, pained victim of stolen identity, end quote. So first thing you want to do is try to frame as crazy. Raised in segregated Virginia, who grew up to galvanize Americans against apartheid in South Africa and champion reparations for the descendants of slaves, died on Friday in uh, Basseterre on the Caribbean island of St. Kitts, where he had lived in self-imposed exile. Again, crazy. You say exile. Self-imposed exile. Okay. Well, I guess you gotta say self. I guess I could, I could understand it as a language choice. From the United States for more than two decades. He was 81. His wife, Hazel Ross Robinson, said he died in a hospital from aspiration pneumonia. This, this next line is what gets me. Born into poverty in a rat-infested home without central heating, a telephone or a television set, comma, Mr. Robinson was raised by loving parents, both teachers. He went on to win a basketball scholarship to college and to graduate from Harvard Law School. The 1978's older brother, Max Robinson, became the first black person to co-anchor the news on a national network on ABC's World News Tonight. And then he goes on to talk about his things. We're going to talk about Randall Robinson for a few minutes this morning. But, uh, you know, rat infested home. But his parents would love him. Uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Cut loose the sandbag, but the balloon wouldn't go any higher. Let's go up to the mountains or down to the sea. You should always say thank you, but at least say please. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Hooking up, we're rat infested, but loving parents. I get it. And you ain't got but a little bit of a word count, although Randall Robinson in the black press should be on the front page of any remaining black newspapers. And I must quote here uh, Ron Daniels, who's one of the many people who wrote obituaries, and Kichi Taifa, who worked with Randall Robinson, so many others. I've been waiting, seeing them cascade. But, um, you know, the first news we heard here in Nubian Nation was from Karen Hunter. And I'm eternally grateful for that because it's, it's a where you were moment for us. Randall's called Randall Robinson Black America's Secretary of State. Now, there have been a couple of Negro Secretaries of State, right? Colin Powell was Secretary of State, wasn't he? Yeah, he's Secretary of the United States, not Secretary of Black People. And I would not, I would, you know, friendly amendment to uh, our elder. I would say he's one of the Secretary of States of the Black world because Randall Robinson didn't see himself as a Black American only. In fact, when he moved to St. Kitts, when he moved to his wife Hazel's home, when he moved, when they moved with their daughter Kalia, and when as they were leaving, uh, I think they, I think she was at Cathedral, National Cathedral School over there, and uh, she had <laughs> their daughter Kalia had done a, a, a done a project where they asked them to pick a piece of art, and she picked Norman Rockwell's painting of Ruby Bridges. Yes, that same Ruby Bridges that the uh, white nationalists in Florida are moving to have neutered and term neutered. I don't want to use gendered language, spade and neutered, uh, deracializing in terms of all the comment, all the uh, the ways that you narrate Ruby Bridges fight and and her family's fight to integrate schools in, in Louisiana. Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks was told to move on a bus. She didn't. And she fought for herself. No, Rosa Parks was fighting white supremacy, but they try to, you know, change all the language. But Kalia, as a young girl, picked this. And 
you know, you think about the impact of curriculum. And she was in this white school, white private school. Robinson writes in Defending the Spirit, his memoir, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Um, he, he talks about how they would have loved to have sent her to a public school in D.C., but the quite the reality is that those public schools wouldn't she wouldn't be able to get the kind of education that she would get at these other schools. And and then in fact, let me let me I'll come back to that in a minute. I don't want to get too far down uh, in, in that piece. But when Ron Daniels calls Randall Robinson, Black America's Secretary of State, and I would go so far as say, no, he's one of the global secretaries of state, maybe for the time of his most uh, visible and engaged activity in Trans-Africa, he was the Black World's Secretary of State in some ways, not without difficulty and challenges, but it reminds us that we are in a society that is not a nation. It's not a nation, y'all. And when Robinson leaves, he says, I'm as much a Nigerian. I'm as much a Haitian as I am an African born into Jim Crow segregation in the United States. I'm an African. He says, my nation is my people. That's critical to understand about Randall Robinson. He comes from a generation that suffered American apartheid whose parents had suffered it before them, whose parents had suffered it before them, whose parents had suffered the lash. But he is not foolish enough to co-mingle his beingness with the beingness of the criminal enterprise of war, of settler colonialism, of death camp labor, and of a network that binds it all together. He is not foolish enough to pick a flag and a, an artificial line over people. He is not a descendant of slaves. He is a descendant of captives. Captives who were not from the same places on a huge continent, the world's second largest landmass. However, who through force of resistance to those settler logics were able to create the possibility of a global nation in all of its glorious differences. Randall Robinson said, I am a member of a global nation. And I tried, as we talked about on Monday night in Nubia, if you were there with the several thousand at this point who are in our Monday night conversations, uh, one among now the growing offerings across all seven days in Nubia. But as we read and discussed in his book, Quitting America, the last page, he says, I tried to love America, its people the dominant majority, their depiction of me, their treatment of mine. Because he talks about growing up in segregated Richmond, him and his brother Max, his father who was the basketball coach, the all sports coach, because y'all know in Richmond, some of y'all in here right now from Richmond, so y'all know Magdalena Walker and you know Armstrong High School, those were the rivals. And he talks about going with his father, Max Sr. and learning skills in the same coterie of young boys, his brother Max, two years older than him, and they were learning basketball skills and they did with the Ash family and Arthur Ash Sr. And they didn't realize Arthur Jr. was around the corner on the other side of the, of the building learning tennis. 
<laughs> these all these cats came together, but he talks about them going to the movies. And what they saw about Africa made them snicker and giggle. That foolishness stuff. You know? Tarzan and all that. The propaganda, the war. You know, we have overcome that to a degree. And I'm going to tie all this together in a moment. But when he says, I've tried to love America, it's people, the dominant majority, their depiction of me, their treatment of mine. He's saying that I grew up in a society that taught me to hate myself. He talks about a beauty parlor in his memoir, Defending the Spirit. And he said he is black owned, black people, he said, but at the same time, they're in there practicing pathology. Why? Putting the heat on their head to look like white people. He said, I myself did it. Smashing the pomade into my head and sleeping with the do-rags. I have waves in order to go to church. Now, sure, that's a hairstyle. You can say that's a choice, but is it a choice when you've lived in a society that taught you that the hair you came out your mother's womb with and whatever variation it is is somehow not the hair you should style? That the introduction of pomade isn't just a style choice, but it is something that has been inserted in your mind by looking at Tyrone Powers or Clark Gable during their period or Brad Pitt and ours. The psychic war against Africans led Randall Robinson to live an early life where he says, I tried to love America. It's people, the dominant majority, their depiction of me, their treatment of mine. I've tried to love America, but America wouldn't. In fact, I should leave these eyelashes alone. But Professor Hunter, I caught by accident in the middle of the night a tweet that you let out. You, you said it was the eyelashes. Were you referring to the... You know, oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh... I'm just asking. I, <laughs> First of all, you have to know me before you comment. Yes. You have to know where my allegiance lies. No. And why uh, I am equal parts um, shady and uh, <laughs> loving, equal, equal parts. But yeah, no, I just, you know, um, it wasn't the eyelashes, of course. The, the eyelashes had nothing to do with, with the victory of Iowa last night. It was defense. It was that young lady that I think was uh, ev evoking the memory of Steph Curry every time she released no, the ball. No question. They played well. They played hell again. I was like, Lord, how and it was it was nerve wracking. But every just about every one of those girls had had those eyelashes. And I was just thinking about, you know, and I and I get it. Um, you know, there there's such commentary around the physicality of particularly women athletes and and how they show up. And so um what does it mean we just talked about what does it mean to be a man what does it mean to be a woman you know and all of the characteristics that go with it it was just me being snarky okay <laughs> no but, but i mean you know yeah. but to your point yes you know um and no disrespect to those ladies because you know no. how much i i love no question. respect dawn staley and the no effort question. that she put and what she represents and i just was just you know just an offhanded uh, tweet that had no um, connection to anything. So y'all took it however you wanted. Maybe I wasn't talking about the game. Okay. <laughs> I just asked. No, but really, and no shade to any of them, right? Because, you know, we both teach young people. And it's very, it's impossible, almost impossible, as a young person, unless you just preternaturally mature to see yourself in time and space. And there are things, even in your mid-30s, certainly by the time you get to be 40, 50 years old, you look back and say, ah, <laughs> but we all do it <laughs> um 
the, the most liberating thing is to to show up in, in a world where you completely are comfortable in your skin. Um, when we talk about freedom and Sonia Sanchez, the, the freedom yes. that comes from your inside knowledge of self yes. can only come with time put in on this earth yes. and, and experiences. Uh, live your life, make your mistakes, bump your lip, bust your lip, bump your knees, do yes. all the things and run headlong into adulthood and embracing every bit of who you are but know who you are, every bit of it. Um, and that's, you know, that's all, that can only come with time. Yes. Somebody asked in the chat with Brandon Janone said, with Brandon Johnson to be a better prospect if we knew he was grounded in Africana framework. It, mm. That's a hard question to ask. We can't, I mean, again, this is where we get into conversation. I mean, I'm going to tell you what framed it. This is what uh, Prof and I were talking about last night for a minute. This question of loving a country. Can you love a country? Should you love a country? Should you love it? My answer is, of course not. But but, we, but we'll get there. And again, Randall Robinson kind of evokes this. But um, let me ask you, let me yeah. ask you, do we need to, to love a country? You know, like what what is our responsibility as citizens? Right. Do we need to love a country or is the is the edict to love ourselves is the edict to love ourselves? And I'm not thinking individual collectively. And if we love ourselves collectively, then the country functions the way it should. Right. Is it is it love? I, I feel like we put a lot of stake in flags and ideology and not a lot to Randall Robinson's point into humanity, into human beings. That's and if we centered humans, all humans, human beings who breathe. The same air that you're breathing, yes. Then, then this whole notion of patriotism takes. We're, we should be patriotic to one another. We should, you that know, is. that should be our flag. That's right. Well, of course, I think that the answer is of course. That's what we should be. We should be in community with each other. We should be thinking about that. In fact, one of the things that uh, Chris Manjapa writes, if I can find it quickly in the in the book, he he talks about this question of the the end of enslavement and the creation of emancipation was not the end of enslavement it was the beginning of the next form of oppression and as i mentioned with him yesterday i said yeah you know we when we read the miseducation of the negro in nubia last year when carter woodson calls jim crow jane crow apartheid in the u.s the sequel to slavery he's saying the same thing emancipation still reinforces the idea that there's someone else some other system that has control over your humanity i've emancipated you what well that means i have the power to emancipate you and i continue to have the power to regulate you through laws through policy so the question of patriotism for black people for oppressed people indigenous people people who have been invaded is really a question, even white people who get pulled into the criminal enterprise and think that they have to somehow pick a flag and a country over humanity. This is a, a form for black people anyway. And I say this all the time. I said this when uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, when she launched her Center for uh, Journalism and Democracy at Howard. And I said, you know, when you see a lot of black people waving that flag, that's cosplay. What they're basically saying is, please just leave me alone. 
I'm sure there are many people who didn't like that, but you know, I feel like Randall Robinson. Plus, I don't reread Randall Robinson. <laughs> if there's a hell below, we all gonna go, but you can go first after you. So if you think I'm gonna take that back, and you see me with a flag, it's cosplay. I'm trying to get you leave me alone. And so when we think about the questions that somebody just raised in Newbie about would Brandon Johnson be a better candidate if he, we knew he was African centered. Well, it would certainly send off alarm bells for people who pick their teams based on patriotism because you can't be African-centered and be American. That's impossible. And now you sure you can wear some kente cloth. You can put a black fist up every once in a while. You can shed a tear at Gore, uh, at, uh, at Cape Coast like uh, the vice president of the United States did. And I have no doubt in my mind that when Kamala Harris stood at that podium, he says vice president of the United States, and many of us, we've all been prof, you know that they're in that crashing surf with the cannons and the Atlantic Ocean beyond them at her back this week and began her remarks at Cape Coast. Unscripted remarks, at least as has been reported. And I tell you, whether, whether the rest of her remarks were scripted or not, or whether she departed or not, I tell you what wasn't scripted. When she opened her mouth and you felt that, you heard that catch in her voice. If you got any African blood, you can't stand in Elmina. You can't stand at Cape Coast or Fort Jesus and Mabasa. You can't stand on Gore Island. You can't stand in Cameroon. You cannot stand in Weta. You cannot go anywhere. You can't go to Angola. You can't stand anywhere where they snatched our ancestors out. You can't stand anywhere and not feel that. Now, you know, I don't know relationship between she and her husband. I assume they love each other, but you know, I know it's got to be a weird feeling to walk into that dungeon with a white man. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. When oh. I went, they had, you know, they had some some of these folk. Um, that and I refused to go in, and I told them I, mm. I will not share this experience. I will not share this experience with them. I will not share this experience with them. I'll either wait, or they're going to have to wait. But I will not go in to this with folk do it can't do it can't do it can't oh, do it. I, I saw that picture of them holding hands and i was like mm, mm. that's weird to me yeah I mean, and maybe not to her right i mean but you know I... no again love is love that's all good but there's a there's a particular spirit in those places mm. that's mama. almost <laughs> And I guess it's like, you know, Daniel Black's the coming, you know, it's like that boy coming down into the, the holes of the ship. But, you know, when I asked him about, you know, why you, you brought humanity to that 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 colonizer, because he wanted to, he said, to show the evolution that that years from now, that same young man will have lost all sense of himself and would be probably the captain of the ship. Will be the captain of the ship. And maybe there'll be a couple of pet Negroes he'll keep around, but uh, he going to maintain his system. But, you know, and, and yeah, we respect it. Yeah, you can't you can't say you don't respect it if you are serious about the idea of our common humanity. So respect everybody's humanity. But, you know, when I go back, you know, the first time I went, we were all black people. Lyndon Jeffries was there. Lyndon Ross Jeffries were there in 96. And, you know, it's one thing to be in Black Star Square, Kwame Nkrumah where he spoke it's and of course the black star in the center of ghana's flag taken from that global pan-african movement the universal negro improvement association and african communities league of the world that we've talked about many times of course marcus and amy garvey 
and Kwame Nkrumah heavily influenced as a Pan-Africanist telling everybody to come home. It's one thing for Kwame Nkrumah, you stand in Black Star Square where Nkrumah invited everyone to celebrate the independence of Ghana in 1957. And the president of Howard University was there along with Louis Armstrong and Martin and Coretta King. It's one thing to stand there in 2023, March 2023, and to go to a state dinner with the president of Ghana, and you've brought along the president of Clark and Lincoln University, Howard University, and Morgan State University, and people are like, this is great. Yes, it's one thing, but Randall Robinson writes about what is the responsibility of elites? You know, it's one thing to do that. It's quite another thing, though, to go into that dungeon. And on the day before Marvin Gaye's birthday, it reminds me of his song, Trouble Man. Because when you go into a space like that with that many ancestors that have been in that void that Chris Manjopper is writing about that becomes the connecting piece, that darkness. What does Marvin Gaye say in Trouble Man? I know some places and I've seen some faces. I got good connections. They take my directions when people say that's okay. They don't bother me. No, I'm ready. Don't make it. Don't care about the weather. Don't care about no trouble. Got myself together. I feel the kind of protection that's all around me. I come up hard. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. I've been for real, baby, with the trouble man. There's only three things for sure. Taxes, death, and trouble. Yes, indeed. I feel the kind of protection that's all around me. You come in that room holding the hands of a white man, if you can feel that protection all around you, God bless you. Your common humanity is stronger than mine. Because like Randall Robinson, I've seen too much. I love you, but I can't hold your hand walking in here. Because somebody looked like you raped countless People that look like me going up them back stairs in the women's side of this dungeon, sir. So we'll continue to hold hands on the other side. In fact, I, I really need to go in here first. But I get it. I get it because Kamala Harris, in the moment she stepped at that podium, that Africa came up through her voice. And then she continued remarks. And what increasingly grew stronger was the state because she is the vice president of the United States of America, not the vice president of black people. Colin Powell was the secretary of state of the United States of America, not like Randall Robinson, the secretary of state of black people. And so when Randall Robinson talks about this, what uh, Chris Manjapper and I were talking about is what Randall Robinson is talking about. He's talking about living our full humanity in a society that forces us to negotiate with this system and ultimately in order to destroy it we've got to figure out ways to do inside and outside and that's really the life of Randall Robinson that's what I'm going to spend the last few minutes today you know Manjapra writes about this system wanting to extract from us this hopeful suspension of final judgments what is a hopeful suspension of a final judgment meaning what we know we've abused you we know we've done all this to you but ultimately we want you to suspend final judgment because we know that ultimately you can, you know, we're going to be better. Just, just keep, just keep trusting us. As we said in, in class, uh, year four last, you know, just, just, just hang with us. Go to hell. Uh, while I was looking for Randall Robinson's first novel, which I have around here somewhere, the emancipation of, uh, what's his brother's name? Clay. Somebody will look it up. Uh, I got it around here somewhere. I got a signed copy. I just couldn't find it. But anyway, the other ones I have here, I'll mention them in a minute. I did 
come across this book I've mentioned before. This is JFK Ordeal in Africa. He's on the phone there after having learned on the 13th of uh, February, 1961, that Patrice Lumumba has been killed. Yeah, he, he ain't sad. He just like, ah, oh, shit, now I hope the rest of these Negroes don't kill the rest of us. But the book opens with a real war criminal. At least he's been called a war criminal for most of his adult life, certainly over the last 50 years. Um, never tried, never convicted, of course. And that would be a man who still walks the earth some kind of way, Henry Kissinger, who Randall Robinson talks about having real battles with, because, of course, Kissinger with Nixon and Kissinger from then on supporting apartheid governments, the governments that Randall Robinson was fighting, the governments that Trans-Africa was fighting, the, govern the governments that Ron Dellums was fighting in the, in the United States Congress, that Charles Diggs was fighting in the United States Congress, the governments that were being propped up here, along with other dictators like Mobutu Sese Seko in Congo, then known as Zaire, coming as a consequence of the United States and France and Belgium's interference in the politics of the Congo in the 1960s. But there's a quote from Henry Kissinger here at the beginning of this book, uh, JFK ordeal in Africa, it says the conjectural element of foreign policy, the need to gear actions to an assessment that cannot be proved true when it is made, is never more crucial than in a revolutionary period. Then the old order is obviously disintegrating, while the shape of its replacement is highly uncertain. Everything depends, therefore, on some conception of the future. Now, what is this white nationalist criminal talking about? He's saying that as, 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 as structures change, as, as social structures change, if you are the one who built the existing social relations and social formations, the ones that Chris Manjopper is writing about in colonialism and global perspective, if you want to maintain your control, you better have a vision of how you're going to maintain control. This is about the future because you're in an unstable moment. We are in another unstable moment in global history. I was just uh, reading, and I, I won't—I know I put that somewhere else. There's a new book, relatively new book, new to me anyway, on Asian relations in the 14th century to now. China, Korea, Japan. And how the concept of the state that we live under now, the so-called nation state, was not something that they developed their societies around. So when you look at China as a country now, North and South Korea, which didn't exist until after World War II during so-called Cold War, and Japan, you're not looking at countries in the way that we would look at the United States, for example, or even England, for example, but you're looking at now in a world system, obviously they got labels and lines, but the world that is coming is going to be increasingly driven by those who see themselves as connected beyond national boundaries, beyond state boundaries, as we talked about in our Introduction to African States class in framing question uh, three, how did Africans begin to conceive of unity and thought beyond national boundaries in the face of European and American imperialism. And this is something Chris Manjapper is writing about in Black Ghost of Empire because he talks about this process of rememory like Toni Morrison talks about, this process of remembering like Ngugi Wathiango, the, the, the Kenyan writer talks about. And Ro Randall Robinson understood that while he was born in the United States, and this is what we're gonna talk, talk about him in a minute for a few minutes. While he was born in the United States, his allegiance is to people to his family, to his community, 
And there are moments, as Chris says, when the system that exists wants to ex elicit, extract, demand of, elicit from, extract from those it oppresses some hopeful suspension of final judgment. Anyways. Well, Randall Robinson says, I finally woke up, which is why he says that the last pages of Quitting America, as we know from Monday night, and as the rest of the, the world is finding out now, as we read uh, through this, he says very quickly, I tried to love America. It's people, the dominant majority, their depiction of me, their treatment of me. I tried to love America, but America would not love the ancient, full African whole of me. Paul, what is an ancient, full African whole? Africa was not one place. No, it wasn't. But the pressure cooker of the modern world system created the possibility of Africa as a concept that we could all buy into. African humanity. It's very important. Thinking about how Robert Randall Robinson grew to think of the world, we understand that the Africa we're talking about now didn't exist back then, but there is an African personhood that transcends all this time and space that we brought with us after developing, first of all, all of humanity and creating in our African humanity distinct ways of knowing, distinct forms of culture, meaning making distinct movement and memory, and then having that stuff pressure cooked across waters, Indian Ocean, Red Sea, Atlantic Ocean, creating a global Africana, or at least the possibility of it. So if you want me to suspend something and think about a future, it's going to be that. It's not going to be becoming a pair of damn earrings or a bracelet or a beautiful cap or perhaps a, a nice shawl on your funky ass white nationalist global enterprise. Not going to do it. And any Negro that picks that, go with God. But understand your master is teetering now. And so Randall Robinson goes on to say, again, I've tried to love America, but America would not love the ancient full African whole of me. Thus, Robinson writes, I could not love America. I had come to know too much of her work. I think this is something that is particularly symptomatic. And everybody in here, we're a global family now. If you got people in your family, elders who grew up under the hard, brute, open force of white nationalism in the world. I know all, all our folks are here right now. I saw Aya in the chat. So Aya and Adesoja and Baba Oz and all them. I mean, you know, your parents and great and grandparents and great they remember the British in Nigeria. They remember the British and the French and Cameroon and the Germans. They remember the Italians in Somalia and in Ethiopia. You remember if you are South African, you got elders who remember the Afrikaners and their full-throated bleats. You remember Namibia. You remember in Zambia how they operated. We're going to talk about Zambia in a minute with regard to Kamala Harris's grandfather. I mentioned him in passing, P.V. Gopalan. In fact, I might as well mention it now uh, very quickly as a footnote. You know, she went to see the place where she was four or five years old. She and her sister, a couple years older, her Maya, where they spent time visiting their grandfather. Their mother made sure that they went back to India, but they went and saw him in Zambia one time in Lusaka. The Zambian government was scrambling, apparently, over the last week, couple of weeks to find the place where he was stationed because he had been sent there by the Indian government. In fact, I was laughing. I see here come Kamala Harris. She is literally the Afro-Asian. At that Bandung Conference in 1955, the Afro-Asian Conference, nine years later, the Afro-Asian is born. 
that becomes the vice president of the United States. She visited her grandfather who was sent there to help the first president of Zambia, KK, as they called him, Kenneth Kaunda. And I will say very proud that I got a chance to spend a little time with Kenneth Kaunda one time in South Africa with the Steve Biko conference. And, uh, you know, President Kaunda there, he's from that generation with Julian Zareri and Kwame Nkrumah and them, even, uh, even Patrice Lumumba. And she was in Zambia at the place where she met, met her grandfather, went to visit her grandfather when she's four or five years old. Now, why is he there? He's there sent by India to help Zambia because Zambia is dealing with this influx of immigrants. Where are they coming from? They're coming from what used to be known as Rhodesia. Now Zimbabwe, because Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, because despite the best efforts of this uh, funky ass Henry Kissinger, who still somehow walks the earth, and Richard Nixon and their friends in England and, uh, you know, the Lancaster House agreements because of that, despite their best attempts to keep propping up the set, the state at the tip of South of Africa, South Africa, Zim would be free. And in 1980, they took their freedom. So now here's an influx of immigrants into Zambia fleeing. Why are they fleeing? Are these black immigrants? Are they white immigrants trying to maintain their power? What's going on here? But PV Gopalan is sent to help the Zambian government with these immigrants that are coming. Why? Because you know one thing about white supremacy, they're going to run their criminal enterprise. If you're a guy like Elon Musk and you come out of your mama's womb in South Africa, you're going to be global. By the way, I saw in Financial Times that the uh, the Teslas are not holding their resale value. Apparently it's plummeting. Anyway, we wish you our coldest regards, as Gil Scott Heron might say in dot, dot, did it, dot, dot, dash, the ghetto code. Y'all know about that. Go look up Gil Scott Heron on his birthday. He said, we, he said of Frank Rizzo, we understand he's sick. We wish you our coldest regards. We understand that Elon Musk is losing more money. We wish you our coldest regards in terms of your product. I know you ain't own the Teslas, but the resale value going down. They don't make people think twice. But my point is that you were born in South Africa, but you can live in London, Madrid, Paris, New York, and because white supremacy is global. Now, the question is, can we make Africanity global in a way that benefits us? So yes, in 1980, Zim takes its independence. Randall Robinson is sitting there in the stadium as the British Union Jack goes down and the flag of Zimbabwe goes up. And he says, I was there with a sister from South Africa, an elder who was saying, I hope I will live long enough to see this day in my country. And he said, you will. Black people's secretary of state said to that elder, you will. And she did. He writes about that in Defending the Spirit. Now, Kamala Harris at four or five years old, she's in Zambia visiting her grandfather because there is an attempt to create some solidarity and maybe some connection. And here she is as a grown woman standing in that same Zambia representing Black America and, and, and Jamaica and India as she travels the world as the vice president of these oppressed people. Oh, wait, no, she's the vice president of the United States of America. So no shade of her at all when she gets at the podium in Lusaka a couple of days ago and says, I'm here to foster a new relationship with Africa and in Zambia. That means what we can do is the United States to foster private investment and public investment. Well, that private investment started when they put all them African leaders on a plane and brought them to Washington, D.C. back this summer. And y'all remember, we talked about that. Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State for the United States of America, is standing over the shoulder as these as the President of Zambia is signing contracts with businesses, U.S. businesses that want what Zambia has. And what does Zambia have? As a four or five-year-old, Kamala Harris said, when I was visiting my grandfather, she writes about this in her book. She says, when I was visiting my grandfather, one of the things I remember, I don't remember much, but one of the things I do remember is how red the soil was. You know why it's red? Because Zambia is Africa's leading producer copper 
since a little girl, I remember the red dirt as a grown ass woman. I'm over here to make sure these Zambian markets start giving this damn copper to our people, black people. No, the United States businesses. Come on now. This is a global game we're playing. Meanwhile, China, as we talked about the other day, was it $22 billion? I think they owe China and have defaulted Zambia on the loan. That gives the United States a point of entry, not the United States government, but United States business. Why? Because China and their Belt and Road Initiative has been in, and we've been talking about that a lot. Talking about that a lot. The businesses that China is doing. So you see that they have spent about $240 billion in 22 countries in the last 20 years. Many of those countries are defaulting. China, however, is not in multi multilateral talks. Meaning what? They're not bringing in the international MF, I'm sorry, the International Money Fund, or the World Bank. See, these institutions, these Bretton Woods institutions were created after World War II because Europe, battling between the Churchill version of let's keep the empire going, shit up, fight on. And America like, nah, we need to have soft power. Meaning what? We're going to stay in charge, but we're going to make it look like we're your friend. Even as we take out people who might not, you know, agree with us. Again, uh, White Malice, Susan Williams' book, we talked about that. Osmond talked about that as well. Um, this process, however, China now saying we'll float the loans, we'll float the finance. Now, the problem is Chinese loans come maybe four or five percent interest. The IMF loans come at maybe two percent interest. The, 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 the countries, the so-called underdeveloped countries, many of them in Africa are faced with a Hobson's choice, which is no choice at all. So the vice president of the United States is over there looking for points of entry for the United States to get stronger in a continent, which is indeed the future. And as Henry Kissinger said, you got to have some kind of theory of the future when you're in moments of transition, which is why, as you say, President Hunter, President Otto in, in Ghana is saying, yeah, we open to everybody. And y'all, you made that point on the radio. Yeah, we open to everybody. We, uh, we open there. But are you open to everybody? Because Zambia didn't defaulted on the money they owe the Chinese. In East Africa, you got some problems going on with that. In Sri Lanka, they owe the Chinese money. They just got money from the IMF. And the Chinese are like, are you going to take a loan from the IMF? Maybe we don't refinance your loan. So now they're putting pressure on the Chinese. Well, you, you got to restructure our debt. And the Chinese is like, yeah, but you took money from the IMF. And we don't do multilateral, meaning multi-institutional financing you took money from us for belt and road she gonna do so now you got a problem guess who's looking at that those other 21 those other 20 countries who are those other countries that have taken money from china well pakistan uh i mentioned zambia who else is on that uh oh yeah ghana come on now now we were talking um and several people said to me when uh, the vice president of the United States was meeting with the president of Tanzania, President Hassan, that how are the Tanzanians looking at her? Are they looking at her like, rah, rah, black people, like we in black America who incredibly naive when it comes to foreign policy. In fact, one of the things Randall Robinson said, I'm very sad because Americans generally and black Americans specifically, which breaks my heart, know very little of anything west of Los Angeles and east of New York. <laughs> Meaning what? <laughs> we don't know. Maybe we could also say north of Buffalo and south of Dallas, you know, or south of Houston. In other words, when you go 
outside the United States. First of all, we don't know much inside the United States, those of us who are in the United States, but outside the United States, we don't know. We all oh, the president, the vice president of the United States, look how them black people should wear it. Idris Elba, that's great. He's from Sierra Leone. He up in the studio. There's Shirley Ralph. That's beautiful. It's all beautiful. That's great. Now, how do it free us? Because one of the things Randall Robinson says, I see how those kind of things free the elites. Now, the question is, how do it free the rest of us? Because in Ghana, they are organizing and saying that this government is not doing what we need as the people. Part of it is because you take in outside aid. You don't want aid. You want trade. But you can't get trade. Because if you get trade, that means you can stand up on your own two uh, feet. And the United States don't want that. The vice president said, we want partnership. We don't want to, we don't give aid to Africa when we partner. Yeah, we know how your partnership works, Madam Best Vice President, against even the arguments you might make behind closed doors. But you're not the vice president of black people, of India's or Jamaican. You are the vice president of the United States. It's an elective office that's more, uh, more caretaker than it is policy driver. Who's driving the policy is the people that paid for your seat. They paid for the mummy seat. The guy who might drop you from the ticket or might not because he got to whip up electoral fervor in a in a year. And to do that for black people, maybe you just got to put a black face out there. Let's bring this all together in terms of Randall Robinson. When you start with a network, you can grow. But that network got to be based on something. Could be based on family or blood. By the way, I don't know if y'all saw it in the Financial Times the other day. First Citizens Bank out of North Carolina. It's a family-owned bank. Started with one branch in the in the in the sticks of North Carolina in the in the country. They in Raleigh. Some of y'all know First Citizens. I'm looking to chat in a minute to see if y'all somebody know First Citizens. You know what they did uh, on Sunday a week ago tomorrow? They bought the rest of SVB in the auction. Yeah, they bought Silicon Valley Bank. The rest of it in the auction uh, by the uh, uh, FDIC. Uh, over the last 20 years, uh, First Citizens has bought about a over a dozen banks that the FDIC sold to them in auctions. They've now jumped to the 16th largest bank in the country. They're almost all in small towns. 70% of, uh, of their deposits are from people who are FDI insured, meaning less than a quarter million dollars. Y'all better look at who's right. One of the guys in the family, this, it's a family-owned bank. One of the people in the family was a congressman, Republican congressman out of North Carolina, how much you want to bet they paid some money to help Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature. See, see, while we talking about, you know, games and, and reality TV, they talking about how we going to keep this criminal enterprise going. Now, I'm not saying, of course, First Citizens is a, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a criminal enterprise. I'm just saying that capitalism is very key to this and capitalism doesn't know any state boundaries. Capital flows internationally. And then when we come up and say, let's connect internationally, their response is, you better go salute that flag and get in them lines because we set this whole thing up for you to stay separate from each other. Randall Robinson busted that out from the inside. So let's let's talk about that. I wanted to mention that because, you know, we have expectations of politicians that we shouldn't have. You know, the vice president, God bless her, is the vice president of the United States. The president of the United States, Barack Obama, was the president of the United States, not the president of black people. Now, can we press them to do stuff? Yes. Should we expect that they'll respond quicker than, say, a Bill Clinton, who ain't said nothing about Rand Robinson and I saw, which he probably shouldn't because Rand Robinson might get up out of wherever they have his body and go slap Bill Clinton based on what we're going to talk about now. Their relationship, particularly because Rand Robinson was very clear that Bill Clinton sold out the Caribbean, beginning with Haiti, 
but he just followed in a long line of politicians who have who've sold out the Caribbean because, you know, in fact, uh, he talked about the Mickey Cantor, the U.S. trade representative. Uh, Robinson is sitting there meeting with him. He writes about it in Defending the Spirit. And he talks about how he's saying, look, the Jamaicans just want to sell their fruit. They just need trade. And Haiti the same way. All these trade. And Cantor's like, oh, yeah, we're going to make that happen. We, we're really about trade. Then he says he sees this white boy meeting with Chiquita Banana CEOs. CEO, which used to be United Fruit Company. We talked about that when we talked about Costa Rica and the Garvey movement last summer. But the whole point is that this is where the phrase Banana Republic comes from. We ain't about to let them sell them bananas. You know why? Because they're saying, they, they come to Robinson like, how do we deal with this question of the war on drugs? Robinson is like, they're only selling drugs because they can't sell their fruit. Michael Manley is my friend, the Prime Minister of, uh, of Jamaica. In fact, Ronald Robinson talks about that. Michael Manley's his friend. And Michael Manley, who they call a communist and a Marxist, Robinson says, I'm not sure any of them communists and Marxists. Not really, not Lumumba, not Manley. Man, Y'all took out Maurice Bishop, Michael Manley tells me, in, in Grenada. And, and Michael um, uh, Maurice Bishop was friends with, with Randall Robinson. They, again, this guy is like black, the Black World Secretary of State. He's dealing with black people. Manley is like, yeah, man, these guys are not interested in anything other than power you have to talk to them because it's the structure we live in but always be clear about what is going on and when it's clear that they, that part of this drug issue is because like everywhere else including here in the united states what did gil scott heron say he said you know the lady was looking at some hungry babies and decisions had to be made in other words i gotta feed y'all one way or the other at birthday gil scott heron Randall Robinson is, 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 is confronting what we call real politic. He's talking to the U.S. trade representative about trade with the Caribbean, and the trade representative is lying to his face saying, oh, yeah, we're for trade. No, what you for is the United Fruit Company, now known as Chiquita Banana, and damn them Jamaicans, damn them Haitians, and they will sell drugs. And we ain't really trying to give no money anyway to crack down on drugs. We'll wait till they get here and lock them up and then pay ourselves to guard them and feed them and clothe them criminals funky criminals so if you're going to be a politician on the inside you got to fight that but we have to be on the outside making sure that you have no choice but to change and this is the power of trans africa now let's talk spend the last this last couple of minutes here on randall robinson defending the spirit this is a book and we were talking in office hours on monday night about reading a book and i was thinking we could read Defending the Spirit. Defending the Spirit, published in 1998. Very important book. If we chose something from Randall Robinson, we could choose leaving, I'm sorry, quitting America, which we read from. This is from 2004. We could choose, um, and I'm sure y'all put it in the chat by now. I just haven't had a chance to, to glance. Um, we could choose his book on Haiti, where he goes through all of this, the kidnapping of Aristide, the two coups, an unbroken agony, how the New York Times sent their reporter down there, Lydia Paul Green. They, they lying to everybody. He said, I'm at the elections and the New York Times reporters are saying there's all this violence and stuff. I'm walking around. I'm with the people. I'm saying we don't see this. I'm looking at international observers. I'm looking at the U.N., which is very problematic in many ways. We know that in Haiti. And Randall Robinson doesn't shy away from that. But at the same time, he's saying, then I pick up the New York Times and they saying all this violence and nobody's voting. He's, that's a lie. So I know why the New York Times waited because y'all not Randall Robinson's friend, but he knew that and didn't give a damn. 
we could read, of course, The Debt, his best known book, The Debt, What America Owes to Blacks. And then a couple of years later, he wrote The Reckoning, What Blacks Owe Each Other. Or we could do his final book, which is a beautiful book about a grandmother, a grandson, and ancient Africa, Ethiopia specifically. The grandmother and grandson are in Virginia. It's kind of like what Du Bois does. He sees some autobiography in it. The grandmother been blind since birth, but when she dreams, she dreams in vivid color. The book opens with her as a princess and her sister, who's also a princess, and they're, and they're watching the dedication at Lalibela of the stone churches of Ethiopia. They back in like the 11th century, the 12th century. And she's dreaming. And then she, she hears the... In fact, let me just do this right quick. Give me 30 seconds here. Because... It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. She says, let's see, they're watching this dedication. And then as Maron was speaking, one of the princesses, the other princess, the princess felt in her ears a pulsating rush of blood and heard an unfamiliar interior voice that was not her own. The voice seemed to be coming from far away and inside her head at the same time. The princess made an effort to ignore the voice and tried to push it away from her. But the voice came again, this time more insistent. It frightened the princess, not least because the one word the voice had sounded inside her hair, head and in the back of her mind was not of her language, Amharic, although he also talks about Ge'ez, the ancient language. America's not going to celebrate the full, whole African self of us. But of a strange language she'd never heard before and could not understand. Where, where, Maron? But the voice inside her head had by now gained purchase. With a small soiling undertow of an unwelcome memory, the little voice spoke again. Let me pause there. The beauty of language. Randall Robinson writes, with the small soiling undertow of an unwelcome memory, the little voice spoke again, childlike, lovingly. The princess had been happy on that fasica morning, even as something warned her that she oughtn't have been. Something in the back of her mind kept pushing itself into her thoughts. Then she heard the strange foreign word again. The word seemed to have been spoken by a child, a boy child. Grandma. Her eyes came open, fully open, but she could no longer see the Abyssinian mountain that the Sabbath sun had turned red like fire. She could no longer see the calm waters of the River Jordan or the church faithful in their ceremonial finery or the magnificent stone worship houses her people had carved from solid rock. She could no longer see anything. She was blind. For a long and disconcerting moment, she did not know who she was or where she was. Only five to eight seconds later did she realize that she had been dreaming. That's the grandmother in Virginia, ain't never been outside of Virginia, spent her whole life washing clothes at a white folks house, talking to her grandson in the novel the novel published by Randall Robinson with Open Lens, Ascacious Books Open Lens imprint, who he thanks. I found it, Prof, because I thought Monday night, perhaps, uh, but these are the, that, that, that perhaps there were other people involved, but these are the sisters involved in the acknowledgments. He says, I'm especially appreciative that Makeda, which is the name of the book, Makeda, that's the name of the central figure, that Makeda has been chosen as the first book to bear Eskasich Books' new open lens imprint. For this, I owe a special thanks to Marva Allen, Marie Brown, Janet Hill-Talbert, and Regina Brooks, as well as to the publisher, Johnny Temple, the 
as Kashik books. Three black women at the center of this. Mm. Yeah, this was published in 2011. This is his last book, Makeda. It's, it's set in Virginia, but it's set globally. He's bringing Africa through this grandmother who never seen with her physical eyes, but every time she dreams, she travels the African world. And he talks about his inspirations for that, which include John Henry Clark, who he had a long, lifelong relationship with. His readings on the Dogon people. He writes about that, all that. He says, this story is fictional, but all the historical research is accurate. That's Makeda. We could do that. So, or we could end with today, the one, as I said, might be the one that just, I mean, it brings it all together for this man who in many ways was a secretary of state for the black world and, and, and gives us an answer to the question of how we love, you know, do we love a country? How can you love a country and don't love the people? It's called defending the spirit. And I just want to mention a few things from it. He begins by talking about his upbringing in Richmond, Virginia. And he talks about his parents. He writes in here about the only time he saw his father cry. Now they say he grew up in a rat infested house. But he writes in, my daddy would trap the rats every night, drown them. My mother used little tin patches to cover up the holes. They made that place a home. And then they sold the house. And they moved to a white neighborhood. And he said, he said it, it became black right quick. This is like they're raising the sun moment. This is what he writes. He said, I saw my daddy crying once alone in his bedroom. I had never seen him cry and it frightened me. I asked mama about it. She told me it was because he had gone into debt to buy the house. He had signed a 20 year mortgage, committing himself to payments of $50 a month. Daddy, our family's sole breadwinner was mortally afraid of debt. Remember, debt's one of them three categories that Chris Manjapra is writing about. Mm -hmm. He said he worked longer hours, doubled up on the mortgage payments, and paid off the loan in 12 years. You funky ass New York Times. I know you had a word limit because it's only Randall Robinson and you couldn't get away with not writing one, but then you're going to start with the Radifest, but his parents were loving, they both teachers. You need to do, could you reread the book? I know you're writing fast because you didn't expect them to pass, but come on now. He talks about police. He got a little car after he, he was he, he went to. He said, "My my brother Max was a superstar in the in the in the, in the in, in the school. My sister got straight A's and she got one B. It's still disputed to this day <laughs> in her whole academic career. You know what I'm saying? My other sister, my baby sister, she was brilliant. Me, I was messing around. You know, I played basketball. He went to Norfolk State on a basketball scholarship. He was six five. He played basketball for Nor Norfolk State. Then he got drafted, went into the military. And they told him, the brothers was like, look, man, you can get out. They can really send us to Vietnam, but you are you are like a few weeks on the other side of the uh, of the release they'll give you if you're in school. So he got out and they sent his uh, group to Vietnam and many of those cats never came back. He came this close. Robinson came out. He came back, went to Virginia Union. This is where, as we talked about on Monday night, Reverend Wright told us, you know, he, his family and Randall Robinson's family know each other well, been in each other's weddings. Reverend Wright was on the board of uh, of Trans-Africa, of course, Reverend Wright went to Virginia Union. And of course, the Virginia Union trains those great ministers, Samuel DeWitt Proctor, so many others, um, mentioning all that in the context. Now, one, at least one of Randall Robinson's children graduated from Howard. I haven't seen Howard release a statement, but I'm sure they will at some point. Oh, by the way, I should also 
uh, point out something that we many of us know, but then there may be some people who here don't know. The White House released a statement on Randall Robinson, but it wasn't Joe Biden. It was Kamala Harris. Shout out to the vice president of the United States for doing that. I would like to believe, I have no way of knowing, but I would like to believe that she said that, you know, I want to be the one to do it. Now, Joe, let me do this. You know, whatever it does or doesn't mean, it came from Kamala Harris. It did not come from Joe Biden. And that's okay, because Joe, I mean, because Randall Robinson fought with U.S. presidents sequentially, you understand. Um, he talks about the fact that when he was in the army, he read a novel, no, a, 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 a memoir of sorts by E.R. Braithwaite. We talked about E.R. Braithwaite when Sidney Poitier from the Bahamas made transition, of course, because they made one of Braithwaite's books to serve with love into a movie. He said, that's when I began to think about Africa very differently. Now, he would live long enough to that his mother, as she turned 90, got a chance to go to Africa. I'll tell you about that in a second. I'm going to keep this short. Harvard Law School. He comes back and goes to Harvard Law School. He said, I don't teach you how to be a lawyer at Harvard Law School. They teach you all the, the major theories and all that. And this is where the thing really makes you mad as hell. Well, I mean, he starts with this, actually. Let me just go here for a minute, part one, where he's getting Cambridge, Massachusetts in winter 1967. He says, I have arrived from segregationist Virginia to attend Harvard Law School. Our first year class of more than 500 students is divided into four sections. My section is sitting through a torts lecture given by Professor Charles Freed. Tall and bespectacled, Professor Freed was born in Prague, Czechoslovakia in 1935, was educated at Princeton and Oxford in Columbia, and he goes on to talk about all his classmates, some of his classmates there of the 121. Seated how halfway up the descending bowl, the ascending bowl to Professor Freed's left is William Weld, a future Republican governor of Massachusetts. At our level with Professor Freed and to the right is Samuel Berger, who like Messrs. Sanders, Pierce, and Weld will find his way into public service, eventually advising President William Jefferson Clinton from the post of assistant to the president for national security affairs to Mr. Berger's right and two rows behind since Mark Joseph Green, late of Cornell University in Great Neck, New York. By the mid nineties, Mr. Green will have nailed down a position as New York City's public advocate and a statewide reputation as a liberal Democrat. It's the same Mark Green that at the retirement, at Randall Robinson's retirement, you hear Earl Graves and Ed Lewis talking about they was protesting out there after the death of Amadou Diallo and they was putting fire to Mark Green, a classmate of Randall Robinson at Harvard. And he goes on and says, Freed is talking about nuisance as a nuisance is a theory in torts. And Angie Porter here to walk us through this. Nuisance is a, uh, a, a theory in torts. You, how do you create a nuisance? Some kind of actionable offense. Something that's so offensive that you can take somebody to court for creating a nuisance. And Freed asks, can anyone think of an actionable nuisance we haven't touched on today? He's talking about grating noise, belching smoke. What about black people moving into a neighborhood? Suggests Mark Joseph Green, liberal Democrat of Cornell University in Great Neck, New York. Robinson writes, a thoughtful discussion ensues. Henry Sanders looks at me. There are three black people in the room. Randall Robinson and Hank Sanders are two of the three. Hank Sanders, I love this brother, and his wife. They all went to school together. Hank Sanders and his wife, Fire Rose, also known, um, well, yeah, Fire Rose Toure also known as Fire Rose Turay, they are Harvard Law School graduates and lawyers who have taken their law degrees and waged holy war on white nationalism in Alabama for the rest of their lives. They still down there in self. Fire Rose and Hank Sanders are the brain children and the driving force behind the Selma Bridge crossing every year. They were classmates of Randall Robinson at Harvard Law. This is uh, Hank Sanders' novel, Death of a Fat Man. It's kind of an autobiographical novel, 
it's about a, a father and son, a father and daughter, but it's a brilliant kind of meditation on struggle. Hey, Sanders, brilliant lawyer, his wife, brilliant lawyer, classmates of Randall Robinson. So he says, a thoughtful discussion to Sue's. Henry Sanders looks at me. We five blacks, in fact, oh, oh, it was five of them, sorry. We five blacks, in fact, all look at each other out of 121. Our faces betray little. In any case, the privileged young white scholars are oblivious. There are legal arguments to be mustered, pro and con. I've been in that room. Not this room, but at Ohio State, I've been in that room. Now, I didn't look at nobody else. I may have looked at Belithia a couple of times. Watkins, we was in class together. But when one of them, I remember, I'll never forget that day in contracts. We was talking about Williams versus Walker Thomas. That's a D.C. furniture store. The whole thing where they was charged, overcharging black and poor people for furniture. And then if you bought one more thing, they put that on the tab, too. Even if you paid off everything else, if you miss one payment, they come take everything out of your house. And so it, 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 it's a case that is used in contracts law in most law schools to teach uh, the theory of unconscionability in contracts. There are some contracts that are so unconscionable that they can't be enforced. You know, contract is basically offer acceptance and consideration. Well, that's just I done paid over the years for this furniture 15 times. Then I came in here and bought a, a, a nightstand and I missed one payment. And then you came and took everything that I paid for uh -uh. Williams versus Walker Thomas furniture. Hand goes up, Professor Sheldon Halpern, now did. Professor Sheldon Halpern, we organized against him. That's a story for another day. Halpern, from the front of the room, it's probably maybe 150 students in there, maybe 10 or 11 black students scattered around. Maybe not that many, come to think of it. Uh, somebody state the, the case, state the facts in Williams versus Walker Thomas. A hand goes up, middle of the uh, auditorium. Yes. Uh, plaintiff was a welfare mother who went into, she kept, this white girl kept doing the stand, my hand is up now. I'm looking at, I'm looking at Halpern dead ass in the face while she's talking. Everybody now like, what is he doing? So she finishes, uh, Mr. Carr? Yeah, I didn't see welfare mother anywhere in the statement of facts. This is the guy who used to wax and drone on about how uh, when he worked at the, one of the benefits of working at the big firm was they bring you lunch, the ladies come and feed you and you get to eat and all the benefits and they 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 they, they, they do your, your cleaning if you want to just leave your suits and I mean, just in the middle, this is why y'all go to law school so you can do that. And then this is the guy. Who, oh man, we used to battle, and he's he had a reputation. He they said no black can ever get above a C in Sheldon Halpern's class. I, said, I thought it was supposed to be blind grading. Anyway, so I wasn't in the room like Hank Sanders and Randall Robinson, but I've been in the echo of that room because I'm 58 years old. I my parents were raised in apartheid. They were raised in the lost cause. They were raised in Jim and Jane Crow. So it's almost like that ghost lining. We have to tell these stories to our children. Adolf Reed is right. You got to pass these on because they won't experience that. They think you think that's your friend. You think that's and, they, and your friend thinks you they friend until, as you say, like that little white boy on the boat in the coming, they grow up and say, you want your structure or you want humanity? Oh, I'm picking things over people. You done lost your damn mind. Now, you my friend. You can come over here. I might even give you a diversity, equity, inclusion job till I figure out you ain't going to burn the country down, which one I'm going to fire all of y'all. But right now, let's, you know, please don't, please don't. I thought we was friends. Come on now. Uh, give me some doubt. Anyway, Randall Robinson goes on. He says, they just talked about it. He says, 
the discussion of whether or not the mere presence of blacks constitutes an inherent nuisance swirls around the five blacks. We say nothing. We cannot dignify insult with reasoned rebuttal. The choice is between ventilated rage and silence. We choose silence. He says, doubtless Mr. Green will not remember his attempt to expand the definition of nuisance as a tort. 30 years later, I would not have forgotten. I'm going to uh, just, let me put my timer on. I'm only do five more minutes because we are, we're over two hours now. We've been keeping it under and kind of dialing back. I just want to mention this. Maybe we'll talk more about Randall Robinson next week because we haven't even touched his life. Randall Robinson finished that law degree. He practiced law for a year. That's it. Me and him had that conversation the first time, man. We pitted me over. We was talking. I said, man, you know, I wasn't going to practice. He said, you know, I didn't practice. I said, yeah, you didn't practice. He said, no, nah, man, I, shit. I took the bar. Only three blacks passed the bar in Massachusetts that year. And everybody else who failed sued. And then they gave everybody the test again. And every one of the blacks that sued and all the blacks that took it that time passed. At which point I, we all realized it ain't no such thing as a blind test. How the hell they all passed? And it's the same people. Anyway, he tried his best to practice law and then he got fired with another sister because they were assigned to basically be public defenders for young black people in Boston, black and brown people. And they said a black person should be running this unit. And when they wouldn't back down on the demand, they got rid of him. He worked three more years in Boston at a, as a community organizer. And then he was able to, well, actually before that, he talked to the dean, Walter Leonard. I think Walter Leonard ended up being president of Fisk, come think of it. Walter Leonard was the dean, was a was an associate dean at Howard uh, at Howard, at Harvard Law School, and bef actually between that and and doing the three years of community organizer, he went to the black dean as they called him, and said, "We want to go to Africa. Who? Me, Hank, and Rose Sanders. What? We ain't got no fellowship, y'all." Dean Leonard went to the Ford Foundation, and they made up a uh, uh, made up a uh, a fellowship, and that's how Randall Robinson got to Africa the first time. And he writes about that in Defending the Spirit. And then when he got there, he began to see the class politics. He began to see the difference. He said, we can do good work. But he says, we should go back to the United States and work for Africa from the United States, since the United States is the source of many of these problems. And that's what he basically did for the rest of his life. Charlie Cobb actually also worked, was, was in East Africa at the time. Remember, they were in Tanzania. Um, he worked for Charles Diggs. He worked for Bill Clay. In, on Capitol Hill, after he finishes community organizer, he's got this degree. He comes down to D.C. and he starts working for Charles Diggs. Charles Diggs out of Michigan was at the time chair of the uh, committee on the District of Columbia for the Democratic Party. And he was the chair of, of the subcommittee on Africa. But he got caught up in scandal. And even though with 20 plus years seniority, remember Charles Diggs is the brother who went down as a congressman from Michigan to the Emmett Till trial. Diggs got caught up in scandal. He, he wasn't good with money and numbers. He tried to, you know, put everybody on the payroll. He took money and sell. They got him out the paint. And had he stayed in, Randall Robinson writes, he probably would have been the chair of the House Foreign uh, Relations Committee because he had the seniority. He said, Diggs messing up and then giving an opening for them to get rid of him hurt Africa in ways that we will never know because he would have been the chair of foreign relations, not just the subcommittee on Africa. He says, Diggs got together with Andy Young, who was in Congress at the time, and they had a big meeting in DC to come together and put together a policy group 
to deal with Africa. Again, generationally, this doesn't mean these guys are heroes. These women and men are all heroes and that. What it does mean, however, is that there was a different consciousness toward Africa in the 60s and 70s, even among black elected officials. The elected officials now are not those elected officials. That's three generations away. These elected officials never knew the whip. Now, God bless people like Lauren Underwood, who is a registered nurse herself, who's a congresswoman, who has been pushing for maternal health legislation, who's been doing that. That's absolutely right. She's out of that same Illinois where that mayoral election is going to take place in Chicago. But let's be very clear about this. How we deal with foreign policy now is so much more punk ass <laughs> because loving a country, or at least cosplaying it to the degree that you won't say nothing when you look at this retirement thing for Randall Robinson go on C-SPAN look at it person after person is excoriating the United States government not just on South Africa but on Cuba not just on Cuba but Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago and and in policy toward Haiti not just that but what's going on in Africa Randall Robinson said I live long enough to see how the black bourgeoisie emerged he said I went in a room where the Nigerians came over here and they told me, you need to stop talking about American foreign policy in Nigeria. While you criticizing it, you hurting us. You might mess up our money. How much will it take for you to be quiet? We'll go up to a million dollars. This was when, Nigerians know what I'm talking about. This is when Abacha was the person in charge after IBB, after Babangada. And, and Robinson is in the room like, uh-uh, because he said, the one thing you must never compromise on is your principles. Let me pause here we could pick up some more next we're going to say a few more things about Rand robinson but maybe that's a good place to pause for now the one place you don't paul you don't compromise is your principles Randall robinson whatever mistakes he made or didn't make being human in the world whatever ways me one thing was clear as he moved through the world on principle oh i, I well, i'll say one more thing about the retirement party trans africa after 2015 kind of just silences he retired in 2002 bill fletcher took over as president danny glover took over as chair of the board they moved to trans africa forum more of a think tank kind of informing people about africa and the caribbean and africans in the u.s the african diaspora robinson speaks last if you go look at c-span he says i was at home and the phone rang he said hello he said can i speak to Randall robinson he said yes before this, he opened his remarks to saying, I'm going to be brief, but there's a there's a commercial IBM does. And it says, uh, what, what did he say? He said, and that was the moment I knew something like that. He says, no, he's, and then and then, you know, I think was it. And then, you know, that is a commercial. And some of y'all, if y'all knew this IBM commercial back in the 70s, please, you know, put it in the chat. He says, so I asked the phone, hello? Yes. Can I speak to Randy Robinson? Yes. Uh, yes, I'm an intern at TransAfrica. Okay. He says, we, we want to invite you to something, but we need a CV. Do you have a CV you can share with us? This is an intern at TransAfrica that he founded in 1977. He said, well, uh, I, I, I would think you would have something on file. <laughs> The young lady intern now says, well, they said we would have something, but it's been misplaced. And then, you know, <laughs> in other words, what he was saying is you stay on the wall as long as you can. But each generation that you pass the baton to, 
is going to have to run its own lap. And Trans Africa today is not when Trans Trans Africa ran around. So we talk some more about this next week, but that's yeah. where we restore this memory. You know what I'm saying? And then you know you can only do what you can do. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. <laughs> I tried to find that particular speech. I couldn't, um, but I found, I found one because I think people need to hear his voice and see, see him. So I'll, I'll play this um, on the way out. But I wanted, um, first of all, thank you. Um, thank you. This, this is important. As, as you were talking, I was like, the fact that we didn't have an obituary for him, it took almost a week, and then it was disrespectful made me, I have to reach out to my editor and Ahmad. I was like, listen, um, now we're going to take up the task. I, I assign obituary writing to my class every semester. It's yeah, it's about that. Yeah, yeah, but I do because it's a, it's a format. It's a particular style, but it's also the, the best writers, the best writers, because those are the, the keepers of the history, the keepers of the memory. Those are the storytellers, obituary writers, classic obituary writers are some of the best writers at newspapers, right? No, because no, no, no. it requires research. You got to know stuff. It's depth of writing. You have to bring these people to life. And most obituaries are written before people make transition. So so that's why the format is what it is. It's the name, claim the fame, that they died when those first two paragraphs get tacked on afterwards. So the fact that they didn't have one ready for him. Prof, let me just say, I want you to finish. I just want to mention right quick. The, they, in 2016, they did a documentary called Obit on the New York Times obituary writers. I made a point of traveling to see it. It just shows, it underscores what, these are some of the most remarkable researchers. I was sitting there like, wow. Anyway, please continue. But yes, to your point, I see why you have them trained to learn, write obits. They, you got to know stuff. Yeah, so, so, uh, so Yara, we're gonna pluck a couple of my students and I'm gonna put them I, in the hub and that's gonna be, because no, none of our ancestors should make transition without having uh, this. What you're doing right now. So they should be honored and they should be honored by people who knows what the hell they're talking about. Not some hack uh, trying to piece something together. Maybe somebody said in the chat, throwing it in chat GPT and then putting Ooh. it out in the universe because that's what's happening now. My God. So My thank God. you. Thank no, you for thank your you. deep knowledge. Yeah, and Kichi, yeah, Jelani, and Kichi Taib was, was excellent because she knew him well. There, there have been people, right, but I love this though. So we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a, a, a no bit writing unit. Got to we have. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's stunningly clear. Like I ex absolutely expected there to be an obituary on Sunday, and there, oh, was a, there wasn't one on Monday, and there wasn't one on Tuesday. And then when you just read the one that they actually put out, it's like it's sad. It's sad. Our, then this is a hundred years from now. How this man will be remembered because that's the staple. Now we're gonna go to write. Now, Right, hundred years from now, may not be no New York Times, but guess what's going to be here? Yes, we will. We will. Mm -hmm. On that note, uh, baseball fans, uh, I, I followed uh, oh, yes. Dr. J. I followed Dr. J, who said I wasn't a baseball fan, but I was a Reggie Jackson fan. <laughs> I was never a baseball fan, but I was a Hank Aaron fan because of my grandmama, and I was absolutely a Reggie Jackson fan. And I watched Reggie, so that we're gonna get homework. Uh, so I would like us to have, maybe have a little discussion. About I know we can already go, but tease us. What did you think? Oh, first of all, the conversation with Hank Aaron. Oh, yes. Must Everyone must. We, that's y'all's homework. Watch you know Reggie on Amazon Prime just for the conversation between Reggie Jackson and Hank Aaron and Reggie Jackson and J Derek Jeter. And Jeter. That conversation, I was like, okay, Jeter. I'm 
You know what? Talk about governance and social structure. First of all, Henry Aaron, most dignified. I ain't never seen Henry Aaron talk like that. And yeah, if you've never seen him, that means Dr. J. I was like, okay. I mean, the, <laughs> the conversations that they were having were abs and this is the importance of him being alive. And he said at the, the top, I never wanted to participate in anything like this, you know, like this is not what I do. But I think he realizes in this moment that if he doesn't tell his story, we're gonna have the New York Times out there and other places uh bastardizing people's history and memories. And, 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 and Reggie Jackson, 1946. It's and like, I, this is that generation. He's. I got to tell y'all, because if I don't tell y'all, you're going to mess around and mistake these people for somebody else. That's right. Oh, that's so powerful. So that's homework next week, yeah. and then we'll do a deeper dive, we'll and then we'll, deeper dive. we'll do all that. Uh, I love you. I love you. And uh, see y'all in them Nubian streets.